Well, hello and welcome to episode number 314 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos, and in this week's news and guest pack show, Stansted Airport paid tribute to the NHS, everyone's favourite airline reject the moving of middle seats, and did we all miss the memo this week? Is it really National Ding or Wide Body Aircraft Day today? And then the military grey stuff, and there's loads of news to come in that from Armando this week. So joining me over in the PTUK studios this week, and he's not stressed out one bit. It is, of course, the non-stressed out Matt Smith. I noticed you chickened out there, by the way. <laughs> sorry, well, I, I, I actually wrote it there because I was... Well, I, sorry, I should just explain, ladies and gentlemen. I forgot to write the intro before uh, we started. <laughs> and uh, in, the, in the bottom there is what he should have said is in the military, grey stuff shoots at other grey stuff. But he chickened out because he thought he might upset <laughs> Armando. So there we are, yes. <laughs> yes, yeah, we're having a, we're having, we've been having a few gremlins in the works today, I think it's safe to say. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, uh, over but, to you, uh, Carlos. You're, but, while I but, work you're, but you're there. But you're there. You're, you're there. You're there. I'm... You're in the studio. Things are plugged in. Lights are on. I think we're online. I'm not sure. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I'll go and press so, some more buttons while you introduce press some more everyone buttons. else. You, yeah. you carry on. You carry on. So, <laughs> joining us uh, this week, as always, from his sprawling stately mansion in the Buckinghamshire countryside, it is of course the green-fingered gardener Neville Bounds. Yes, hello, everybody. Yes, so there's lots of uh, gardening and DIY in home activity going on this week. Um, and uh, there will be as well later on, unfortunately, because uh, we're my company's going through one of those furlough programmes, so I shall have some time off in about three weeks' time. So we'll see how we go with that. But, uh, yeah, lots of uh, aviation stuff been going on this week, considering that very little is flying, so it's interesting. And we will see uh, how the media manage that a bit later on as well. And also joining us this week uh, on the show, as always, it is the guy who puts the M into military, and he's obviously the uh, legend that is, the pilot that is, it's obviously Armando. Hey guys, Uh, glad to be back in person for yet another week. Uh, I feel like I can only do this three times a month now, but uh, yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I did get to go up flying uh, I know we had a good conversation about this last week about is general aviation essential or not, but we actually had to fly the airplane because airplanes don't like to sit. So I got to take the skydive plane up for an hour, hour and a half, and uh, take it up to altitude, exercise it, and then bring it back down. And I will say I was not the only one in the skies. There was a lot of GA up, but that's a good conversation topic. <laughs> you're lucky. We've got, we've got hardly any in the UK, so you're lucky in that respect. All we've got is freight dogs flying through the skies over here, Armando. Yeah, I think all of the out-of-work airline pilots are currently taking their small aircraft up in the air and just chasing each other around the skies. <laughs> Actually, what's interesting, uh, sorry to, to, to sort of interrupt there, I noticed that because Captain Rick Bell's in the chat room at the moment, he's just saying Ooh. it'd be nice to be outside, uh, inside, but it's actually snowing where he is. <laughs> I know. Mind you, mind oh, you that's... That's great because tomorrow I have to go up to Pennsylvania where uh, Richard, where Captain Rick is. Major Rick, sorry, Major Rick, not Captain Rick. Steady. Jeez, um, <laughs> oh, I just demoted him. Oh, that's great. It's beautiful and sunny here in Charlotte, and tomorrow I'm going to have to pack a, a knit cap, gloves, and a scarf. and uh, Skis. Good times. Good times. <laughs> yeah. 
So we have got uh, two uh, very special guests on the show this week. And uh, we're going to welcome our first guest on. He is the, uh, well, he's part of one of the the greatest uh, Haynes Manual uh, podcasts in the world, all regarding the Airbus A320. Is of course, Andy Wilson from the A320 podcast. Hello. That's very kind words, Carlos. Very kind words. You don't have to say that. You know, your check has been posted several times <laughs> and it will not bounce this time, I promise. <laughs> yeah, nobody believes you. It's fine. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> I've got the debt hole here. We'll be all right. <laughs> yeah, thanks for having us on the show again. It's been ooh, nearly three years since we were last too long. Time. <laughs> Far no. too long, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it was back in 2017. So uh, how how are things with you, Andy? I'm guessing all these things are quiet with you in regards to uh, your your flying. Yes, last flight I did was the 23rd of March, and since then I've been uh, stay-at-home dad, just enjoying life um, with my little girl and my wife here at home because she's working at home, and it is lovely. I bet. I, I genuinely, it must be like the most time that you spent with your family. And that's yeah. just the nature of the job, isn't it? I mean, you know, everybody knew that what they were letting themselves in for when they signed up, I know. But uh, if you can take a positive out of this horrendous situation, really, it must be so nice to, as you say, have a bit of quality time at home. Oh, it's fantastic. Uh, me and my little daughter, Zoe, have just played and played for the past three and a half weeks. It's just been great. Oh, lovely. Excellent. That's what we like to hear. Good home education, that's the best way. (laughs) So joining us, uh, our uh, second guest on the show this week, we've had guests on in the past, we've had pilots, we've had cabin crew, and uh, we thought we'd push the boat out this week and we'd uh, go for someone who keeps the aircraft in the sky by checking the engines. So uh, we're going to welcome on to the show, uh, for his first appearance on the show, Peter Collins. Hello, ladies and gents. Uh, nice to uh, meet you all. This is something of a first for me. Very generous introduction from you there, Carlos, but uh, it's all <laughs> sounding very good and very much looking forward to it. Yeah, the, 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 first, the first positive instru- uh, introduction is free, uh, and all, all other ones <laughs> after that, as Andy knows, are, are very expensive. But <laughs> Awesome. So uh, just, just a quick, well, quick brief one for, yeah, the, uh, yeah. for the listeners, Peter. What is it, uh, just briefly, what you do? So, in essence, what I do is I inspect aircraft engines. I look specifically at the aircraft uh, engine blades and the hot section um, and just basically check that everything is is serviceable and and good to go. And as well as that, I do a little bit of training for engineers on the engine grammars they need to do in the simulators um, around the world and also train um, engineers how to boroscope. If anyone's wondering, boroscope is like a little camera on a tube that goes inside the engine. In a nutshell, that's it. Now that, wow. what, right, okay, get get your thinking caps on then, chat room, because I dare say you'll have loads of questions that you want to ask uh, in here. And I dare say you've probably had to inspect several of the engines that uh, that have been ruined by Andy in his career. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. too, too many Toga takeoffs, I would imagine. <laughs> oh, and the rivalry between the engineers and the pilots shall continue. Yes, there we go. Hey. It's going to be a spicy old show, isn't it? It's okay, Armando. We outnumber the engineers. <laughs> oh blimey! And, and before this, before this descends into an all-out fight war, we're going to welcome everyone in who has joined us in the chat room this evening. Loads and loads of names. I'm going to quickly whiz through: Tony S, Alan from Helston, uh, Masha. Uh, we've got Laura Davis. Hello, Auntie Liz in the chat room. Uh, Rick Bell is also in the chat room as well. Richard Adams, Nick Codling. Uh, we've got Pilot Pip in there. Alan White. Hello to you, Alan. 
Uh, we're going global this evening, guys and girls. Got everyone across the globe here. Chris Griggs, hello to you, Chris. Uh, Richard Adams, if I miss anyone out, hopefully. Aaron P, hello to you as well. And welcome to everyone who's joined us uh, on this 17th of April. Yeah, we've got uh, Matt's Aviation Channel, Alan from Helston, Laura ooh. Davis. Auntie Liz, obviously, I think you mentioned, didn't you? Yeah, I did, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. So welcome, everyone, to, uh, to the show, and thanks for joining us on this Friday evening. So I suppose we better move things on as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if everyone's ready... Hopefully. Yes, we are. <laughs> Let's go. Let's do it. Ready to go. So kicking off this week's first news story, this one is on the mediacenter.stansfordairport.com. Well, that's a mouthful. And uh, obviously we are paying tribute to our NHS uh, people across the across the country every Thursday evening uh, here with the uh, clapping. I hope you're all outside last night clapping. I know we were. Uh, so this one is uh, London Stansford, which has created its own special tribute to the heroes of the NHS with a giant thank you message on its airfield. The 10 metre by 7 metre thank you logo now adorns one of the airport's main taxiways adjacent to the runway and was the brainchild of Ross Barker from Stansford Airfield Operations team. The accolade was created in five hours by the airport specialist airfield painting team on Thursday in advance of the latest Clap for Carers tribute. As London Stansford COO Steve Griffiths said, uh, the whole country has come together to recognise the fantastic efforts being made by our brave and brilliant NHS, the healthcare workers and the tireless fight against the COVID-19. As part of the tribute, colleagues working at the airport joined the weekly clap for carers applause, but Ross asked if we could go a bit further and create a special thank you message on the airfield. And it's a brilliant idea and very fitting way uh, for the airport to say an even bigger thank you to all those NHS staff working so hard to protect us all at this time of immense difficulty and challenge for them personally. Now, Matt put the pictures up on the screen there uh, while the, uh, while I was reading that story. And uh, it's, uh, it's a great, great thing, I think, this, uh, this being done here. Obviously, it's a shame we couldn't all just hop into a Cessna 172 and um, go and have a... Do a flyby, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You almost want you almost want an aircraft in the air, sort of. You know, like where you do the smoke, um, sort of messages and stuff, don't you? you want oh to, yeah. You want you want an airplane, sort of busy doing that. But uh, I, I guess that would be classed as non-essential travel, so probably not a good idea. Oh, <laughs> see that. Um. But it's good. Well, it's good. Great, everyone. Everyone. Everyone's pulling together. All the industries. I mean, it is a you know troubling time, especially for the aviation industry now. So it's, oh yeah, absolutely. It's good, it's good news. So, moving on to the next story, and uh, Peter, you've got uh, a Ryanair story. Yes, number two. Uh, so, Ryanair boss has uh, rejected removing middle seats to slow virus. You can find this on Reuters.com. So, April 15th from Paris, Ryanair boss uh, Michael O'Leary dismissed mad proposals for planes to fly with empty middle seats when coronavirus travel restrictions end, saying they would be hopelessly ineffective as well as unaffordable. Instead, the Irish low-cost carrier backs the introduction of mandatory temperature checks and face masks for passengers and crew when flights resume, in its uh, chief executive told Reuters. Uh, Aliri was uh, speaking a day after no frills appear, Wizz Air and global airline trade body 
IATA both said they were preparing for requirements that airlines fly only two-thirds full to allow some social distancing on board. We're in dialogue with regulators who are sitting in their bedrooms inventing restrictions such as taking out the middle seats, which is just nonsense, so Leary said. It would have no beneficial effect whatsoever. Sounds like they're barking up the wrong tree. Vacating every third seat would not in any case uh, maintain the required two-metre separation between passengers, which is also impossible to enforce at other pinch points during journeys, O'Leary said. People come to the airport in trains without social, uh, without social distancing, he said. You can't do social distancing in the airport, either at check-in, at security, at restaurants or shops. Even the airports admit that. Europe should instead look to Asian markets where some domestic flights are resuming with temperature screening and face masks deployed to reduce risks, the Ryanair chief executive said. That seems to me to be the best that we would be able to manage. It's over to Nev now for the next one. Quick discussion on that one before we move on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Removing middle seats. I don't think they're going to remove a middle seat. That'd be a bit difficult. But mm. do, do I, we have, I don't think that's really possible. Mm. You can yeah. put seat blockers in, uh, such as, uh, as Neville know, yeah. uh, BA Club Europe. That's got a seat blocker in the middle. It has, yes. Um, and I think another airline, low cost, EasyJet, are talking about blocking out the middle seats as well. But I have to agree with them. I don't. Until restrictions are fully lifted, you couldn't have more than one person in a row anywhere. Because, yes, now this is what I was, when we were talking about this in our meeting, when you take away the middle seat, that still doesn't give you a two-metre gap between you and the person next to you, does it? No. That gives you the width of your seat. And we're yeah. all sat in seats now, and it's about that width. That's not a lot. Yeah, so, that, I mean, that's yeah. not two metres, isn't it? So I could understand it if you had one person on each row and everybody had to sit in the window seats, for example, if it's, a you know, a single aisle aircraft then then you could be sure that but then of course you're not two meters away from the person behind you so you've got to leave a, you've got to miss out a row. i mean it's just I don't yeah know. i'm gonna i'm gonna defend the airlines here real quick so you know I, as you guys know i commute on american airlines and i think they're doing their best so they they will book everyone in the in the aircraft which is not a lot of people right i mean we're talking tomorrow i'm flying up to work it's an a320 and i think there's maybe 20 people on it so the way I've been seeing them do this is uh, if you go online right now, look at a flight, you can see that they've packed everybody towards the back of the airplane. And then shortly before departure, they're doing their best to space people out. So they'll put one at the A seat and then the next row at the C and then the next row at the A and C and so and so on and, and stagger folks throughout the aircraft. But you have to balance that with they're trying to make as the minimal money amount possible. They're not, I mean, they're not going to turn down passengers to keep three meters away from, from another. I mean, they're trying to get every $29 fare that they can get <laughs> wow. right now because that's, that's what it's at. Life. Yeah. yeah. Um, how is that, how is that viable when operating the aircraft will cost a lot more money than that? I don't think it is. And, and there was just a, you know, we're not covering it this week, but there was um, an internal letter to United Airlines employees saying that it's great that we're getting $5 billion out of this trillion dollar uh, assistance package, but that's not, that doesn't even begin to cover our payroll and our operating costs. So the airlines, despite being helped out, at least here in the U S they are still going to lose. And I think we'll talk about it in the, uh, Delta Airlines article, we're, they're still losing up to $60 million a day 
uh, with with yeah. that many aircraft grounded. And so, I mean, and, there's an interesting point that uh, Lane Street is. Perhaps you want to comment on this, uh, Armando. So, and I think you're accepting some kind of risk, though, when you're getting on a plane to begin with, especially in in these times. I mean, uh, you would like to think that the people who are in the air who are, who are agreeing to fly the, to the certainly to the very best of their knowledge are not flying with symptoms um you know i mean absolutely absolutely and the crazy thing about this virus is often you don't even know that you have the virus you're asymptomatic but um i will say a lot of the airlines were slow into adopting the masks and the gloves they were saying oh for grooming standards professional appearances we're not allowing our employees to wear masks. They relented a little bit a few weeks into the pandemic by allowing employees to wear gloves. And it really wasn't until about two weeks ago that I started seeing air crew with masks on. So the air crew knows what they're doing. Like you're saying, Matt, I think the passengers know exactly the risk that they're taking. Um, so I think everybody is doing the, the best that they can right now. There's an yeah. interesting point here again in the chat room. This is why I love this show. The, the chat room are often far more intelligent than we are. It's Aaron P is actually saying, surely that would apply to solo travellers. Uh, but obviously families who all live together can also sit together, presumably. So as long mm. as you kept enough space um, between you and that group, that family, for example, presumably that minimises the risk as well. I mean, th there's been a, a ridiculous uh, furore here in the UK with uh, there's a TV programme in the UK here called This Morning. Uh, that this week has been hosted by two people, Eamon and Ruth. Um, and because they are husband and wife and they live together, um, but people on Twitter have been going absolutely nuts because they've been sitting next to each other, not social distancing. And you think, well, no, they live together. So it's, you know, you're not having to sort of social distance in your own home unless there is a medical reason behind you needing to do so. But, uh, I mean, would that be something that the fact that the airports and the airlines can take into consideration? Um, I, I think we're, I, I think we're overthinking it. I, okay, right. you know, I, what I've seen families go up to the ticket counter and the gate agent or the customer service agent will, will see them and say, Hey, are you traveling together? Mm -hmm. Okay. And then they'll sit them together. It's, it's really not that difficult or on an A320, there's 150 seats open. They just tell them, okay, we'll sit together. It doesn't have to be that complicated. I mean, you have to take the most uh, common sense approach to, to things right now. So, I mean, I mean, Andy, what, what would your, your thoughts be, I mean, on this? I mean, what do you think is the – I mean, we all acknowledge, really, everybody wants the airlines back in the air as soon as possible, obviously, because it's not doing – you know, we've all got friends who, in, who are, you know, really suffering as a result of, of yeah. what's going on here. Uh, I mean, is it going to be one of those where we need to sit and wait this out and then when – social distancing stops that's the time that we all get back in the air or i mean it's it's like everything in aviation the balance is how you can operate and be safe at the same time mm. because of course no airline spends billions of pounds on safety it's all a balance and it's the same when it comes to this at what point will it be safe for two people to be in a row mm. or one person to be in a row because i like uh, amando said some people don't even know they've got it. They don't have a temperature, so that's useless. Uh, face masks, yeah, that, that could work if everybody had to wear, wear them, but it still doesn't reduce the risk completely. So it's all about the risk management. And at that point, at the moment as well, they don't even know if you've had it, you've, whether you, you are immune. immune. Yeah. yeah, so 
until there's more information, I really don't know. I cannot see, especially in Europe, mm. airlines getting back up to even 50% capacity before July, August. No, no. Peter. When we know more about it. So, Peter, I mean, this is uh, <laughs> this this is a, a difficult question to answer, I know. But I mean, what what are your thoughts, really? I mean, do you think do you think it's uh, uh, where we've got to sit here and wait wait out until the guidance changes, or is there a way in which the aviation industry can at least generate some money? I mean, as as Lane is saying in in the chat room here, uh, I mean, he's saying that it is cheaper to operate at a loss than to completely shut down an airline and then try and restart later, which I think is a, a good point. I think that in essence is what people are doing. It really depends on the uh, nature of the operation, the size of the airline or the aircraft leased and so on and so forth. There's a lot of things to consider. I mean, obvious things like you leave an engine for a week, it's very difficult to start it up. You leave an A380 out for a long period of time and it takes a long time and a lot of logistics and a lot of money to get that aircraft just up and running again. So it's this whole balancing act and looking at the finances. And of course, I think I pr pretty much agree with what everyone's been saying in that really this thing is, is very much like how long is a piece of string? You've got the not knowing whether people can get reinfected and so on and so forth. And you, yeah, you get on an aircraft. If, if there's still people who've got this, then you take a risk. So really it's a question for the airlines to decide, is it, uh, wiser for us to keep our aircraft in the air doing something but one thing's for sure that in certainly in my opinion is the face of aviation is going to be a lot different when we come out of this mm. absolutely yeah. and on the point of aircraft storage actually uh airbus i know for one are actually extending all the intervals for maintenance and what needs to be done just to try and help airlines out at the minute mm. um with grounding the fleets and mm. the Civil Aviation Authority in the UK has put extensions on all of our license uh, validities for our license proficiency checks, our medicals, just to try and ease the unknown. Mm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, think, move, yeah. Moving, oh, yeah. Moving swiftly on then. So, we always uh, love to cover stories about fights on aircraft between passengers <laughs> on the show, as we all do. You've got a lot um, of Jet 2 story, uh, haven't you? A Jet 2 story, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but this week, just for a change, Nev's got a story about aircraft that are having fights. Yeah, it's just, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's weird, isn't it? You'd think that this would be the easy bit, but no, there's often lots of dings on the ground. And uh, travelradar.aero tells us about um, a report from insiders at uh, Hong Kong International Airport um, have arisen stating that a Cathay Pacific Boeing 777 had received tailplane damage after colliding with an Airbus A350 yesterday. Uh, and uh, let's have a look at what happened then. Well, it's thought that the um, A350 belonging to Cathay Pacific was being towed on the ground, having shortly arrived at the airport when the incident occurred. Images from the scene showed the impact on the tailplane of the Boeing 777 and the starboard uh, winglet of the A350 aircraft with damage to the shape and metalwork of the aircraft, including cracks. It said that the airport's ground controller received a call at 12.30pm, uh, alerting them to the incident that had occurred on Taxiway Juliet, a taxiway dedicated for aircraft storage amidst, amidst the coronavirus pandemic. No passengers are believed to have been on board either aircraft at the time of the incident. And you think, well, that, that will be the end of that. But no, there's another one. Uh, because uh, on Sam Chewy's website, uh, we hear about uh, another uh, of ground-based incident uh, where a BAA350 uh, and an Emirates uh, 
tra- uh, Boeing 777 collide uh, in Dubai. Now, BA are not having much luck with their 350s. They had the uh, one aircraft in being painted in, I think it was in Toulouse or somewhere in France, uh, and the, the paint rig um, went wrong and damaged something on the plane. Um, and now this has happened uh, to uh, their uh, one of their uh, yeah one of their, their first A350 actually. Um, so what happened was. Um, <laughs> it's a question of well, let's let's read the read the um, read the piece. Um, the airline, uh, the incident was first reported by airline Kitty, and it's possible to see that the 13-year-old Boeing 777-300ER was parked on the tarmac at the moment of the incident. Uh, the Emirates uh, Boeing 777 with registration uh, Alpha 6 Echo Bravo Romeo uh, arrived yesterday at Dubai from Riyadh. Saudi Arabia. On the other side, uh, the British Airways uh, A350, the registration Golf X-Ray Whiskey Bravo Alpha, was performing a pushback to leave Dubai to Heathrow. The A350 was performing flight British uh, BAW106 uh, when the incident occurred. The aircraft was due to depart from Dubai at 1.30 and arrive in London at 6.15 local. Um, uh, and uh, there's, I don't know if you've got the pictures here, Matt, but uh, it's possible to see the damage caused uh, on the A350's uh, left horizontal stabiliser. Mm-hmm. Now, this is uh, uh, obviously Carlos and I went on uh, one of their A350s, which was uh, Bravo Bravo, I seem to recall. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so Rick, Rick says, Bell reckons that'll buff out. I, I don't know well, yes, yeah, someone's, <laughs> someone's going to get the, 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 the metal bending stuff on that, aren't they? But um, the, I mean, there's quite. A, I think the trouble is with these um, uh, larger aircraft, certainly things like the 350s, 777s, you know, there, there's um, when airports were designed, uh, the, these aircraft weren't really around. And although they're, you know, um, suitable and they are uh, authorised to use the various gates and, and the taxiways and so on, um, there, there's a lot more to it now. It's not just a, a smaller turboprop or um, an A3, A320 you're dealing with. It, it's quite a large aircraft. And obviously with the, the wingspan and the winglets and this sort of stuff, it's very easy to for something to go wrong. There you here. go. So, I've got that picture you were talking about up there now, Nev. I mean, that, that, there you ouch, go. ouch is, is the... Uh, <laughs> yeah short answer to that <laughs> I, I, I mean, yeah i mean uh, I, I, again i know this is not, not necessarily uh, peter's specific area of expertise but uh, uh, what is the is it fair is it just a case of replacing the tail part or is it much more involved in that to actually get the aircraft serviceable again in both cases um, I think that you've got a number of considerations you've got to work out um has the aircraft been stressed in any way and the tail as everybody knows a very critical part of the aircraft you've got pressure bulkheads moving parts and it's a cascade thing and uh, the aircraft maintenance manual gives a lot of information about courses of action um it's, it's actually quite difficult to know what to do and in in the uh, <laughs> in the uh, worst case scenario then you do as much as possible um and it's 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 you know really does depend on what's happened you, you know somebody driving a, a baggage truck truck into uh, into a, a tow bar or something like that has a particular procedure there's precedent for it and of course we look at previous um, history previous incidents things that have happened and uh, you know the hindsight and so on but generally speaking there's a lot of zeros behind it and it, it's pretty extensive the repairs required 
Just as you thought there, there wasn't any, anything else that could possibly go wrong, uh, on the simpleflying.com website, uh, they oh, tell no. us about a BA A380, which has crushed a French airport taxiway. Well, this A380 uh, Golf X-Ray uh, Lima Echo Delta tore up the edge of a taxiway at Francis Chatterer Airport, uh, which is where the BA aircraft are being stalled, uh, stalled at the moment because they're not flying. Um, so upon arrival at the airport, the aircraft was marshaled into position along with the other uh, Airbus A380s at the airport. However, whilst the plane was moved into place, it rolled onto an area outside of the taxiway that was simply not strong enough to support the heavy giant. Simple Flying believes that the nose gear caused the damage and the aircraft was turning to park at an angle on the taxiway. Uh, I don't know if Matt's got some uh, pictures of this, but uh, at this time it remains unconfirmed which wheels dug into the surface, but thankfully the aircraft didn't get stuck and was able to taxi out of the hole it had created. But uh, the, I think the, um, the tarmac repair yes, that is are going to have to turn I, out, aren't they? I, I think it's going to need a little bit more than just a pothole filler, certainly. I yeah. Think, uh, yeah, there's there's some issues. That, I mean, that is, that is quite... I'm just, trying, sorry, I'm just trying to get it to come up again. Um, that, that is quite some deep damage, isn't it? And, that, and that's just done by the weight involved of the... Well, yes, wow. if, it's, if it's on a part of the taxiway that's not suitable for it. And, right. you know, with, with an aircraft of that size, there's there's very specific uh, taxiway routes and, and where you can and can't park it, not just for wing, wingtip clearance, I would imagine, but for the actual physical weight of the aircraft. I um, think they should be glad it was empty as well. I was <laughs> just going to say that, yes. <laughs> Quite. If there had been 550 people on it or whatever it takes these days, that, that might have been with a full load of uh, fuel and luggage, that could have been a different story, couldn't it? Yeah. Quite. Absolutely. Yeah. Oof. Oof, I think is the word. A bit of pea shingling now, it'll be all right. <laughs> <laughs> so, right. Okay. so, moving on to the next story. This one, uh, this one's for you, Andy. And obviously, Andy, as we all know, is an Airbus pilot. So this story, I'm sure, uh, is uh, quite interesting for you, Andy. Brings me no glee to read it. <laughs> uh, this is from airlive.net. Uh, Boeing has discovered several more software issues in the... 737 MAX. Um, the Boeing company has said it will make two new software updates to the 737 MAX's flight control computer as it works to win regulatory approval to resume flights after the jet was grounded following two fatal crashes in five months. The United States plane maker confirmed to Reuters news agency on Tuesday that one issue involves hypothetical faults in the flight control computer microprocessor well, that's a mouthful, which could potentially lead to a loss of control known as a runaway stabilizer. While the other issue could potentially lead to disengagement of the autopilot feature during final approach. Boeing said the software update will address both issues. The Federal Aviation Administration said on Tuesday it is in contact with Boeing as it continues its work on the automated flight control system on the 737 MAX. The manufacturer must demonstrate compliance with all certified standards. The largest US plane maker has been dealing with a number of software issues involving the plane that has been grounded since March 2019, and Boeing has halted production completely in January. The company said neither new software issue has been observed in flight. It said the autopilot issue, flight deck alerts and warnings are already in place to alert the crew if it happened. Boeing said it does not expect the issues to affect its current forecast of a mid-year return to service for the plane. And Boeing said the new software issues are not tied to key anti-software system to a key anti-software system known as MCAS 
faulted in both fatal crashes. I don't know why that's called anti-software, but there we go. <laughs> now, I, for, forgive me for being a little bit... Um, um, you're probably going to shoot me down in flames with this. But if... Uh, I mean, presumably the reason why they're going through all this software with a fine tooth comb is obviously because of what happened. Um, if you went through the software in an A320, is there not also a very strong chance that you would also find numerous bugs and or errors? Because I assume that these faults that they're talking about are just bugs that they found because they are literally going through the thing from top to bottom with a fine tooth comb now. I mean, it, you know, there is presumably a high chance if they did the same thing with any... I'm just using Airbus as a direct comparison, so we say the 320. Yeah. Um, surely there is a high risk that you would also find uh, a high number of bugs that could also be... Uh, basically, what you're, asking, what you're asking Andy <laughs> is, Matt, is does Andy have to press Control-Alt-Delete? No, no, I'm not. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> As if I would, yeah. Turn it Quite off regular. and on again while you're in the air, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's been many problems with the Airbus. Or the, the, the 350, the latest aircraft, couldn't leave it switched on for more than 149 hours. Otherwise, that would mess it all up. Right. But they fixed that problem. Um, there's been problems with various... Um, ELACs, so, uh, elevator and aileron control, the set computers. Over the years, there's been loads of stuff. And every time they update the FMGC system, there's often problems with it. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, like you say, because they are digging so deep yeah. this, I mean, the, 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 the Max of the 7.3. Yeah. Yeah, the, the Max is very much under the microscope, isn't it? So, I mean, and, and this is the thing. It's like people have been like, you know, and everybody knows, I mean, the, the, the running joke with this show is the fact that I am a ridiculously nervous flyer. But weirdly, when the, when the Max does go back into service, and I have said this before, like when it does go back into service, I'm going to feel more comfortable probably on that aircraft than I am possibly any other aircraft because they are literally going through it so thoroughly that you, you sort of, I mean, you know, I guess some stuff will be missed, but, you know, the stuff that's missed is likely to have been very, very minor stuff. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no aircraft's perfect and it never can be because it's made by humans. So it, enough, there's always yes. going to be problems. <laughs> that's true. That is true. Uh, I, I mean, Peter, obviously, uh, this is uh, uh, perhaps not something you, you're... You, you're an expert on obviously but i mean uh, what are your your feelings on this whole max you know d well disaster i suppose <clears throat> for want of a better word um well initial first thing like everybody is kind of shock and horror really that um this has happened um long time ago i was uh, working at um uh, rolls-royce aerospace and um i did a lot of work with computers there um, if you write software, you get it right. So you test it and you test it again and you test it again. I take the view that it's unacceptable that this has happened. Mm. It should have been tested. They should have known about angle of attack sensors and other bits and pieces. I take all the points. But, um, you know, what with what's going on now and what has been going on, the contamination in the fuel systems and so on and so forth i'm i suppose for just from my perspective being someone who's involved in aviation i don't have the same uh, specific knowledge that you guys who fly the aircraft have but um it's a different perspective for me but uh you know i asking the question you know you've got these flagship aircraft going back many years from boeing and they've 
why for me personally why have we tried to reinvent the wheel move the engines forward and now we've got this it's 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 just a travesty really to ask how i feel mm. yeah no that's a good point uh also uh, uh lane uh, not lane sorry chris griggs in the chat room is just saying that he was reading a couple of articles in the tech press talking of the age of the computers on the 737 max making it very difficult uh to write hard, to write code for them which is a surprise they're using uh two uh, single core 16-bit processors which is such an old technology i mean mm. I, I guess some of this is also i mean there, there was the running joke for ages wasn't it was it the dx266 uh chip processor chips that they were using in um the uh the um spaceships and stuff uh, that nasa were using because you know the testing and everything had all been done on those processor chips and they knew what to expect with those things so some of it was to do with that perhaps uh this this is the the reason why they're using such an old technology perhaps in the 737 max i don't know yeah it's, it's the same on the airbus the neo has got the same um processor chips that the original 1988 uh 320 had mm. and the amount of info so, that they have to try and put through it when it comes you, to the coding of it they've got to try and find the most uh, efficient way to code right just because you haven't got the the overheads uh, armando you were trying to chip in there yeah here's a question for both andy and peter i so a lot of these 737 max issues have been discovered while they're all sitting in storage what do you think so with tens of thousands of aircraft parked around the world right now in varying ages do you think if if the engineers started going through each one of them addressing all the squawks do you think that, you know, something like the MD-80 or the Park 757s, we would start seeing trend issues as they have nothing but time to go through them and, and start looking at at different components? Uh, no, shall I take that yeah. So you're saying that the, old, the older aircraft, um, you're going to find air issues with them as well. Is that the sort of thrust of your question, really? Yeah, exactly. If you have, yeah, the, yeah, time, yeah. If you have the time to look for it, will yes. you start finding things? Yeah, well, again, it's, it's difficult to to know. Um, for me personally, again, you know, I don't fly the Airbus, but I sit as a passenger on many, many flights because I travel around the world, do a lot of inspections, and I often am sat in uh, an, a, an A320 quite a lot of the time, and I also do the engine ground run training um, on these some of these aircraft. Um, and I think that the facts speak for themselves. Um, the fact that to a greater or lesser degree, depending on the aircraft you're talking about, they rely less or more on computers, depending on what they're doing. And um, you, where well, you can just look back, oh, it's quite obvious, really, you can look back at the history and um, a lot of them just work. You know, I, my, my opinion, I, I'm not sort of taking sides here in terms of aircraft, but the A320 just seems to work so long as you fly it properly and you understand the systems yeah granted there are plenty of incidents where people aren't trained on something or this that or the other and that's the human error factor coming in but it is possible to code something in an unparadoxical way i get it so that it, it will work and you've not got bits of code contradicting each other i mean these are aircraft you know we're talking about computer systems controlling control surfaces and there's redundancy there but um yeah, I don't. I personally don't think with certainly with the aircraft that have some degree of computer in, integration. I, I don't think we'll see much of an issue. Um, but if we look a little closer to home, maybe being slightly subtle, uh, you may find some issues in brothers or sisters of the Max. Mm. And I'll, leave, I'll let you guess about that. 
Yeah. <laughs> this is where I must be going wrong. I must be flying the Airbus wrong. <laughs> I have found, especially with the 320, if you leave it for a few days, and I think Matt said this when he was on last, it can be a bit of a dog. Or even, I remember a couple of years back, I was sent out to Milan to pick up an aircraft that had been sat in freezing rain all day. We put the batteries on, and it immediately started to smell of burning. Oh, brilliant. Mm. <laughs> so we just switched it off and got an engineer, and they came along and told us, start away, it's fine, just put it on. And sure enough, it went away after five minutes. Yes, I, So they are pretty resilient bits of kit. Yeah, I, I suppose this is the thing. Also, again, uh, interesting points here in the chat room here. It's like uh, one thing that Lane is saying is rather interesting. Call your bank and ask them what software they're running. I know, uh, and then Laura Davis is actually saying, and I do remember this shout out, and it was only a couple of years ago because, ironically, I actually have uh, COBOL training as well. She said it's like, it's like all the calls out for COBOL programmers for unemployment systems, for example. I mean, so so many of the systems that the, the first computer systems that we're still relying on the backbone of are, are like literally, you know, sort of, uh, like Unix or, or base running COBOL software. I mean, it, it's just like you know, crazy mm. stuff, really, isn't it? I, get, I mean, this is the this is the thing, isn't it? If the computers are tried and tested and known to be reliable, then you you know, you, it's a brave person that changes that for a different chipset. I saw Tony S has said that uh, they'd been better off with the Commodore sixty four. Yes, the chip the chipset in the A three twenty is actually the chipset from a Commodore sixty four. That's no. not a joke. <laughs> oh wow. Oh, goodness me. It's the hey, same Matt. Motorola chipset. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, Matt, how are you feeling about flying now, huh? Yeah, I, 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 I have no words to say. To, I, I'll, I'll just shut my mouth and move on. Sorry. Uh, Carlos, uh, perhaps you could dig me out of this hole, please. Uh, uh, I was going to say, actually, Matt, next, next time Matt flies anywhere, he's going to take his plug-in controller and I see am, if he can fly just in case. Yeah, yeah, just in case. So, yeah. I'm, cur- I'm, I'm, currently plug- I'm currently bidding on a jo- joystick at the moment. If I win that, then I'll oh. take that with me and plug in. Yes. As long as it's got a serial port connection. Oh, good. I was, gonna, I was just about to say, isn't that what they do in the Airbus? You just take your, your Xbox controller and you oh, plug it in, right? That's it, yeah. We've got fancy USB sockets now. Oh, my God. Yeah. Uh, anyway, moving anyway, on, ladies and gentlemen. Moving on. <laughs> next, uh, next up, uh, Armando has got to actually, I don't know if it's a good news story, I think it is, because at least it's um, kind of good news for uh, aircraft sales, Armando. Mm. This story is from airlinerwatch.com, and it's Delta Airlines takes over an order for 10 Airbus A350 extra wide-body jets from the LATAM group. Delta agreed with the LATAM and Airbus last fall for the agreement. The American carrier said it had deferred several of the near-term deliveries and was working with Airbus on options across its entire order book. A Delta spokeswoman said that the 10 A350 aircraft which stem from Delta's tie-up agreement with Chilean carrier LATAM, would be delivered through 2025. The deal firms up a planned switch first announced when the two carriers forged their alliance in 2019 and whose completion was partially disclosed in the manufacturing data issued last week. The formal transfer of the jet order, worth roughly $3 billion at list prices at least, coincides with Delta and other U.S. airlines negotiation negotiating government aid to help them meet their payroll costs while dealing with a drastic drop in air travel demand because of the pandemic. Uh, Delta Chief Executive Ed Bastian told employees on Tuesday that the airline would receive a $5.4 billion in U.S. government payroll support that would protect jobs through September 30th, but continued to encourage workers to consider taking unpaid leaves of absence 
as it weathers a 95% decline in passenger traffic. Bloomberg News reported on April 14th, citing people with knowledge of the matter, that Delta had agreed to sell and lease back aircraft valued at $1 billion as part of, part of its effort to raise cash while it continues talks about the U.S. government aid. Delta did not comment specifically on that. Um, however, uh, it's reported that Delta Airlines is losing up to $60 million a day. Uh, over a third of its employees are on unpaid leave. It has stored the majority of its fleet, and the airline expects these uh, billions of dollars from the U.S. government as part of the, uh, the current administration's plan to bail out the country's uh, airline industry. So. Thoughts? It's good that they're taking up this order. At least that means that they're, they're, they're going to have to produce these aircraft. You know, they're, they're going to go and be sold and produce a, um, yeah. income for the, mm. for the manufacturer itself. Yeah. But, I think, um, uh, yeah, I think, you, you know, we're facing this challenge right now. They have parked their MD-80s. They're parked their 7576s, but you still have to look forward, uh, like Andy was saying, what is it going to look like when we come out of this? Mm. And the A350 is just a, a much more efficient aircraft than, than these older aircraft. So you, you still have to plan for, for the future of the airline when we come out of it. No, that's true. That's true. Anyway, we seem to have a bit of a running theme in today's show, which involves incidents involving aircraft mm. and airports. So, uh, Carlos, perhaps you could uh, fill us in on the next incident. Yeah, it's, it's certainly, I mean, this, we should sort of rename this show the one where everyone's crashing into their aircraft. Everyone, yeah. Crashing, yeah. <laughs> so this, one, uh, this one's on the Aviation Herald, Simon's awesome site we all know and love. And uh, this is an accident, an Omni uh, Boeing 767. 7300ER. This was uh, back on the 8th of March uh, this year. This one was an Omni Air 767300ER registration November 477 Alpha X-ray. Uh, this was performing flight Oscar Yankee 346 from Bangor to Shannon in Ireland with 181 people on board. It landed on Shannon's runway 24 uh, in the evening and bounced when it touched down uh, hard a second time. Uh, the tower had reported winds from 270 degrees at 20 knots, maximum 35 knots, and advised of turbulence at the touchdown zone. The aircraft rolled out with further, uh, without further incident and taxied to the apron. While taxiing to the apron, the tower inquired whether they had had any turbulence over the touchdown zone, which the crew affirmed. Uh, they, there was. Um, there were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage, however, Matt's putting a picture on the screen you'll be able to see some very serious creasing on the fuselage. So post-flight inspection revealed creases all around the forward fuselage. Ireland's Air Accident Investigation Unit, the AAIU, dispatched investigators on site. The current aircraft, uh, which is still on the ground uh, in Shannon after its arrival, and uh, on the 10th of March, uh, the Aviation from Herald received uh, more photos, which Matt put on there on the screen for you guys and girls to look at of the from the Boeing response team. Um, and they are actually on about getting a repair of the aircraft organised. Uh, on the April the 12th, 
this year, 2020, the NTSB reported the occurrence was rated as an accident and is being investigated by Ireland's AARU. There were no injuries, as I said, among all the passengers on board. Now, it's safe to say the pictures that Matt uh, showed and the pictures on the Aviation Herald website, the damage, in, in my view, is quite quite severe, I think. And yeah. looking, uh, at, looking at the age of the aircraft, this aircraft is just over 18 yeah, years old. Again, Rick doesn't agree. He thinks, again, that'll buff out. Um, but uh, <laughs> it's, uh, uh, so, so this is from a, basically a hard, turbulent landing, is it? Because, I mean, that's quite a crease, isn't it? Yeah, it's, a, it's quite a severe crease. I mean, this has happened before. We've seen this before, um, I think about a year ago or two years ago, we covered a story where an aircraft had a similar incident like this. Um, on the landing, hard landing, where the mm. fuselage had creased. I know that aircraft was uh, was scrapped, but, I mean, thoughts, guys? I mean, this aircraft well, is over 18 been, years old. Yeah, it's, it's a very old aircraft, but I've, I remember there was a first choice 767 at Bristol a few years back that had similar damage, and that got repaired. But I think that was younger. Um, it's interesting, because that sort of wind, I'm guessing this was during, what day was it? Yeah, beginning of March, so that was during... One of the storms, Kira or Dennis oh, or whatever right. it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I was flying during that with similar winds to this, and it is—it's hard work. Yeah, um, is 181 people on one of them a lot or not much for a 767? It's not quite full because no. if it's if it was quite light, then an aircraft in gusty conditions. I often say, say trying to fly a crisp packet. Um, <laughs> it can be really hard work. <laughs> Yeah. So you don't, but you, you never know the full situation here. No. Do you? It doesn't say if it was a training flight or yeah. or anything like yeah. that. Yeah, Omni that is nasty. Omni is traditional. They've been around since the early '90s as a charter. They they have a Part 121 certificate, but they're largely a charter. So they, I, I've flown on Omni on their old DC-10s out to the Middle East and back. They they do a lot of military charters. Um, so they they've had. Uh, quite a few different aircraft, but they're currently all seven sixes and and triple sevens. But uh, yeah, uh, Chris Griggs brought up the seven five in the Ace Force. That one had a pretty good crease, and they took a couple months. Remember, we did a story on that. They they sent some engineers out there in a team, and they fix it, and it flew again. Yeah. I don't know if it flew out to Roswell <laughs> to be <laughs> to be chopped up, but yeah. it flew again. <laughs> also, Lane saying because eighteen years is not actually that old for an aircraft, is it? No, no, no. Technically, no. it's not. I mean, there's there's Mad Dogs. I'm not going to say which airline uh, that are quite considered to be older than that. But um, I mean, when you look at some of the aircraft, I mean, there's there's commercial airliners still in the uh, in use now across the globe, forty plus years old. Mm. Um, yeah, it, I suppose it just depends on how serious structural wise. The, if you, uh, the if you look at the creases along the top on that picture, that that needs entirely replacing. Yeah, H- huge sections. Mm. That's big, big money. So, I mean, is there is there going to be frame structural issues off the back of this as well? I mean, because that crease will have occurred because of you know unexpected movement within the frame that's around that skin, isn't it? I mean, presumably there's there's some other issues there. Not my department. No, okay, fair enough. I wonder if um, (laughs) when these aircraft go into maintenance, which they obviously have to do, where they employ the same sort of people that they employ at your local fast exhaust fitting company. Right. He says choosing his words carefully, yes. <laughs> oh, mate, that's, that's got to be a complete new panel, no? or a complete new part, but we can't patch that up. You know. 
that, there is that. The, uh, yeah, the lovely is. Dr. Steph uh, says, go listen to APG from last week. And uh, Miami Rick does a good explanation as to why the 767 is especially prone to this kind of damage. Yeah. Mm. That's true. Yeah, but, but but don't do that right now, obviously. Not now, fine. No, no. <laughs> no you, need, you need four and a half hours to do that. Oh, wow. <laughs> steady. Uh, okay, on to the next story then, so, please. Peter, Peter, you've, right. got, uh, you've got some good news for East Midlands. Oh, yes. goodness for that. Uh, well, I mean, it's kind of nice for me. I, uh, I'm i from that neck of the woods, and my dad used to take me to East Midlands to watch Concord Landing. So oh, wow. started my PPL there and did my work experience there. So this is a so, nice... I guess I a lot of love for that airport for you. Yeah, then. yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, there we go. So uh, East Midlands joins Europe's Airport Premier League. So a small Leicestershire airport that last year ranked only 13th in the UK in passenger numbers has now joined Frankfurt, Heathrow and Paris Charles de Gaulle in the European top 10 for flight movements. Figures released by Eurocontrol, the Brussels-based Air Navigation Authority, show that East Midlands Airport joined the Premier League with 99 arrivals and departures on Thursday. The figure put it ahead of key European hubs, including Madrid, Rome and Munich. So East Midlands handles a significant number of cargo flights and has seen the number of aircraft movements drop by only 54% compared with the Europe-wide average of 91%. Heathrow Airport has lost its perennial place as Europe's busiest to Frankfurt. The German airport handled 229 flights on Thursday compared with only 184 at the London airports. Third place is taken by Leipzig, another key freight hub. It is the only airport to lose fewer than half of its flights compared with the same day in 2019. With a 28% decline, the East German hub handled 78 flights on Thursday. Paris, Charles de Gaulle, Cologne, Bonn and Amsterdam take 4th, 5th and 6th places respectively. Norway features in 7th and 8th position. Bergen Oslo are handling passenger flights to several domestic destinations as well as international operations to Germany and Qatar. So there we are. That's wow! I like that. Never flown from East Midlands Airport. I will say it's one of the few airports. One of the few airports in the UK I've not flown from. I I I I, I sort of visited it for the hotel that I was staying. I went to go and visit uh, Myla while she was on a on a layover there actually, and um, we were on the uh, my room was on the top floor, which was great, and we were able to actually look um, over at the airport and watch a lot of the activity. And, like breakfast was great. We would literally be having breakfast and stop talking halfway through because there'd be something quite cool taking off. There was quite a lot of, uh, uh, as I say, mainly cargo stuff actually. Certainly at the time of the morning that we were that we were having breakfast, but uh, yeah, yeah, fond memories. The last time I uh, flew from um, East Midlands was uh, in a Falcon 2000 in the jump seat between wow. the two pilots. No. Um, wow. Who were employed by a well-known yellow excavating company manufacturer Ooh. just up the road. Get you. So we flew, flew into, um, where did we go to? Oh, Le Bourget. That's right, yeah. Um, pick up some uh, customers of theirs, as you do. Well, I was, uh, was spoilt rotten uh, back in the... Uh, olden days they uh, when I did my work experience at East Midlands they said if you write to the airline tell them that you're interested in aviation you can uh, ride in the jump seat and um, and so uh, yeah managed to do quite a few of those but those days are gone now absolutely okay uh, now uh, the, the next story is uh, 
with you, Nev, uh, and I noticed there's a sl- <laughs> the currency uh, in this particular article is yeah. one of great concern. Are you going to avoid no, that? Or I'm not going to mention the currency no, name okay. because I will not be able to continue the article. <laughs> Good luck with that, sir. <laughs> but... Um, this is on simpleflying.com, so that's good. So it's a good font to begin with, and we, and we like that, obviously. Um, it says that uh, Bamboo Airways is launching a flight pass program. Participants can pay a one-time fee and fly an unlimited number of flights with the carrier through, uh, through to October the 28th. In addition, flight pass members will also get a host of other benefits, including a resort credit which sounds nice doesn't it so the cost of uh, the airline doing this is uh, vietnamese currency 9.8 million which uh, equates to about 420 uh that can't be right uh yeah i think it is actually 420 us dollars i would have thought it'd be more than that somehow uh, which is an amazing deal for an unlimited number of flights so perhaps it is yeah perhaps it is right uh, members have access to all the domestic flights until october the 28th of this year passengers on this plan can fly free on the basic fare of the bamboo eco ticket with 15 kilos of checked baggage and another seven kilos of hand baggage travel must be secured however at least 24 hours before departure in addition, subscribers will also uh, receive free three days and two nights credit at an FLC resort. According to the airline, this is worth 9.6 million of their currency alone. Uh, passengers will also receive an Emerald Club card, which is the lowest tier of Bamboo Club, the airline's frequent flyer program. Uh, Emerald Club members receive priority arrangements to rebook flights in case of irregularity. Uh, another program that the airline is offering is the Bamboo Pass business voucher. Uh, passengers can choose to buy a set number of round-trip business class flights on the busy Hanoi and Ho Chi Minh City route at any time of the year. The unlimited flight pass is a special promotion until the 28th of October also. Uh, For this programme, passengers can buy 12 business class tickets to be used within three months of activation and one free night at an FLC resort for 58,860,000 of uh, Vietnamese currency or about 2,000 US dollars. 20 tickets are available for 91,500,000 of their currencies uh, or about 3,900 US dollars with two free nights at an FLC resort within three months of the voucher application. Well, why are they doing this? Um, Well, this is nothing new. And that being said, they're actually not very common. But from April the 16th, uh, Bamboo Airways will start to resume its domestic flight schedules. This voucher is certainly a way for the airline to earn some cash and encourage people to travel with the airline. Amid this period of uh, downturn, airlines are trying to sell as many tickets as possible, which is very true indeed, isn't it? Mm, absolutely. Now, I'd, I'd like to get in touch with Bamboo Airways because I've got a new strap line for them. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Brace yourself, everyone. <laughs> with Bamboo Airways, your dong goes a long way. My goodness me. Oh, there, there is something. No. <laughs> Matt, where's the signboard? Signboard, oh. Matt, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Which, well, I, I mean, I've got so many to choose from. We'll we'll, ju- we'll just go with this one. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that'd be a no. Uh, I thought that was good. Yeah, it's not bad. Yeah, all right, I'll change my mind. There you go. <laughs> I could go the other way. Well, we, we, we've heard about that. Yes. <laughs> and, oh anyway, dear. Uh, gloss over that and move Honestly, on. Honestly, yeah. move on to the next one. Yeah. <laughs> so, moving on to uh, Andy. Actually, Andy, it's, it's your turn next with uh, a. Uh, well, yes. This is a, this is a very troubling story 
Okay. Yeah, so this one's also from uh, simpleflying.com. It's an Air France Airbus A330 is shot at twice after landing in the Congo. So on Saturday, April the 11th, an Air France uh, Airbus A330 was shot at twice after landing in uh, Pont Noir in the Republic of Congo. The plane was operating the flight from Paris to Pont Noir and was on a rescue mission to repatriate some 100 French nationals from the Central African nature, nation. The plane was then set to continue on to Bangui in the Central African Republic to pick up 120 more passengers. Uh, the aircraft was attacked at 8pm local time, according to Braza News, and two shots were fired at the aircraft. The weapon was, I don't know how they managed to do this, so identified as a PMAC assault rifle, which is in use by the Congolese Armed Forces, local police and the gendarmerie. The shooter was a member of the airport gendarmerie and was on duty at the time, according to Le Echoes. They aimed and fired two shots at the plane. Fortunately, no one was injured in the shooting and the person involved has been arrested and taken into custody. According to local reports, the person firing the weapon may have been intoxicated. However, the reason behind the shooting is not yet known and we expect a full report will be released in time. Um... One bullet managed to puncture the fuselage of the 330 completely, while the second bullet hit the tarmac. And uh, the aircraft was 17 years old, being delivered back to Airbus in uh, 2003. Air France uh, was quick to respond, confirming that the incident did indeed take place, although no official report has been published. Um, and their tweet says that the flight scheduled for 10 a.m. was postponed for 24 hours in order to allow replacement aircraft and crew to be transported from Paris Charles de Gaulle. And the customers have been warned and taken care of by our local teams. The safety of our customers and our crew is our top priority. Right. So there you go. Okay. Which is which is the most generic response to any incident <laughs> yes. like ever. I mean, I guess that's the sort of standard response that one would expect. I know, but uh, well, this this guy was was blatantly a Boeing lover, you know, and he right. He okay. just lost it, you know, <laughs> lost his marbles. Yes. Okay. All right. I mean, I'm not man. sure that's going to wash in court. I've got to be honest. Uh, no, man. <laughs> no. Actually, funny you say the word wash, Matt, because by that picture which is on this story, um, that's something that Air France obviously. Do not do very often with their Never. aircraft. Never wash them. Never. <laughs> right. Okay. Bit grubby then. Yeah. <laughs> that is honestly. There's there's a few pictures actually, and another one. Of these stories for these aircraft, and they are they are incredibly dirty on yeah. the outside. His aircraft. The, the cleanest Air France aircraft at Charles de Gaulle is the Concorde that hasn't flown. Yeah. Well, Okay, I got complaints from Dave Abbey. He says, Matt, don't blow the soundboard all at once. I think I got a bit carried away there earlier. Uh, and also, it was, uh, as I say, Tony S is uh, sort of, I think, picking up Rick's uh, mantle here, saying, uh, get, get your buffer out, Rick. I think it's, uh, he's convinced us that the ho- those holes will also buff out. So there we are. When it's, uh, pe- people are worrying unnecessarily, I think. <laughs> so moving on to the next story, Peter. Obviously, Peter, you are a PPL holder, so you are That's right. uh, well attuned to flying these particular aircraft and these stories. Yeah, yeah. so uh, we've got a couple of stories here. Um, and first one is a GA aircraft in uh, North America. Uh, this is from CBC. And um, so uh, thanks to uh, Sergey, I think, for sending this in and bringing it to our attention. Pilot was forced to land his small aircraft on Highway 40 in Quebec City on Thursday morning around 10.30am. 
to this day, the pilot of the Piper Cherokee aircraft called the Quebec City Fire Department, asking permission to permission to land on the highway just a few kilometres south of the uh, Jean Lesage International Airport. Fire Department spokesman Bill Noonan said the plane had already landed safely when emergency crews arrived on site. Pilot was not injured. Good job. Well done. Skillful flying there. Traffic was halted for less than an hour while emergency crews escorted the plane off the highway. A Quebec Provincial Police confirmed a mechanical problem forced the pilot to make the uh, surprise landing. So a bit of a precautionary landing there. Some of the video footage. So oh, goodness um, me. This, uh, is, uh... this was a PA-28 Cherokee. Um, uh, Peter, is this something you've flown before? Um, I fly the Archer, very similar, okay. um, very similar in many respects, but um, uh, nice aircraft, but um, yeah, these things happen. And um, I, I was going to say nice, obviously... nice landing, actually, because he managed yeah. to not hit any other cars. And, you know, it's, uh, yeah. I've, I've seen cars travel closer together than that aircraft, it has to be said. Uh, well, what amuses yeah. me about this video, really, is that obviously you've got all these cars on the highway that, that are following this aircraft landing in front of them. And then the pilot obviously very kindly pulls over to the right-hand side of the, of the freeway. But then all the other cars that are coming up behind him just slow down and then slowly move around him and carry on driving up the road. But no, yeah. oh, it's a plane just landed. Oh, yeah. I have to say it's a, it's a pretty spectacular bit of flying there because he managed to thread it between the road signs. Uh, and then also there are some pretty significant light poles on the left side there. So... I'm surprised that nobody slowed down, you know, just to give them a little bit of buffer. But, you know, I saw some hazards on, I suppose. So there's a second incident, Peter, though, on this. Yeah, the, well, there's another um, there's another one uh, from uh, Cincinnati.com. A small plane bound for Lincoln Airport was forced to land on Interstate 75 in, in near Cincinnati on Thursday, closing the highway for more than six hours while crews worked to remove the aircraft. Police said that the pilot, 61-year-old John Bennett of Indianapolis, landed safely, hitting no other vehicles, but coming to rest against a concrete barrier. Bennett was unharmed. Federal Aviation Administration spokeswoman Elizabeth Isham Corey said that the single-engine 1996 Beechcraft Bonanza made its emergency landing En route to Lumpkin Airport, she said Bennett reported a loss of engine power. Uh, Lieutenant Steve Saunders said Bennett, the only occupant of the plane, stayed on the scene to assist in the investigation. So, again, skillful flying with uh, slightly less time with an engine problem. So, uh, but still, nonetheless, very skillful stuff. Have you flown yeah. the uh, Beechcraft Bonanza, Armando? I have, yeah. We almost, yeah. <laughs> Megan and I actually almost bought a Bonanza. It was a P-35 uh, Detail Bonanza. We almost bought that aircraft instead of the Lancer. Uh, love, love the airplane. Bonanzas are just classic aircraft. But I, uh, regarding this incident, I got my instrument rating a long, long time ago in Cincinnati's Lunkin Field. And I will say there's pretty challenging terrains. Uh, Lunkin Field was the original Cincinnati airport, and it sits pretty close to the to the city to downtown and surrounding all of Cincinnati are hills so it's pretty rugged terrain not a not a lot of straight stretches of road there even that highway that he landed on is a pretty curvy highway and you can see from some of the pictures that he managed to put it down on a curve but the 
alternative is to put it down in, either in into a hill, which is challenging to do when you're dead sticking it, or or into the woods uh, somewhere. Um, so mm. good job to both of these yeah. pilots. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it, like it. So, I, I, it's still things that I don't think anybody would want to do again. Let's put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, it only Carl. makes you stronger, right? Yeah, <laughs> that, 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 there is that. Uh, next story is with you, Armando. Now, Armando slightly this lighter. is awesome. Yeah, love this. <laughs> this is a good story. This uh, Keflavik Airport firefighters dance and delight. So a video of a group of dancing firefighters at Keflavik International Airport has been widely watched since it was posted on YouTube a couple days ago. Numerous first responders, including police officers and firefighters, have in recent days posted videos of themselves dancing intended to cheer up the rest of us. We wanted to participate and decided to make this video, says Orvar Birkesson. Uh, this was the whole crew. All of us took part in it. We love to be able to cheer up so many people. We try to do something positive under these unfortunate circumstances in society and show solidarity. The goal was to entertain. And the video is dedicated to nurses, healthcare professionals, emergency responders, everywhere. And it's got a pretty good soundtrack, and they got some pretty good dance moves, I will say. Absolutely. I, I mean, we, we, we're playing the video while you're talking about it here on Monday. I mean, it's. Uh, I, mean, I, I just I love anything like this. I mean, you know, if, if you have got some unexpected downtime, then uh, why not? Let, <laughs> let them make the most of these things. That's what I say. That's they really nice. did. They really did push all the bat, you know, everything yeah, out for this video. Yeah, they've they, got like fire. They've yeah, got action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, just like airplanes, they got to run the trucks and they got to run the pumps well, and yeah, run them water through. So, they got to make sure those uh, those things are tip top. And they keep keeping fit by dancing. Well, quite yes. That's that's perhaps not where they were going with that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So the last uh, last uh, story in the uh, in the commercial segment this week. This is a, a video to play out that we're going to comment on, Matt. Uh, yes, yes, it, there, there is. It's uh, uh, it's it's a, well, I, I guess it's kind of a, like a promo video, isn't it? But uh, let's mm. let's let's have a listen to the video first, and then uh, we'll talk about it afterwards. For over sixteen years, Etihad has been flying from Abu Dhabi to the world. On a typical day, the airline conducts over two hundred and twenty flights. But in late March of 2020, something unprecedented happened. The leadership of Abu Dhabi has very wisely decided to close our airport for inbound and outbound traffic. At the direction of the UAE government, over 100 aircraft returned to Abu Dhabi. And for most of them, their engines went silent. Etihad's cargo freighters are still in the air and some aircraft are being flown on critical routes in order to get people home. But what about the rest of them? What happens to those aircraft as they wait to take to the skies again? I've never seen anything like this before in my aviation career. At the moment, we have uh, about 80% of the fleet in the parking mode. There's a lot of things we have to do. We have to cover the engine intake and exhaust to protect internal workings from the environment, such as the sand and dust. The sensors all have to be blocked. Lots of other items, such as disconnecting batteries to preserve the aircraft. We 
have engineers working around the clock maintaining the aircraft. They're a very intricate, uh, complex piece of machinery. It's not like parking a car, we have to keep them maintained. So we will be running engines, powering up the aircraft, checking the flight controls while these aircraft are in the parking mode. In the hangars, we have uh, aircrafts undergoing heavy maintenance checks. We're also doing a cabin refresh. All the passenger seats will be checked individually. So far, we've replaced 10,000 seat covers and backrest covers. All the carpets are being shampooed and washed. We have about 200 people per shift working just on this. We work closely with fleet management to advance some of the maintenance checks that are due later, whether it's a 777 or a 787 or a 380. We're taking every opportunity during this time, including product improvement. We do this maintenance to the best standard, best quality. We're working 24 hours a day, seven days a week. When our aircraft go back into service, for the passenger, it'll be like getting onto a brand new aircraft. Once the world starts returning to normal, we will be ready. So yeah, so we still get the idea there. So, but it's, it's uh, and this is the one of the, the sort of questions that that really I have on on all of this is um, obviously that they're, they're alluding there to the work that's involved. It, there's been a lot of the aircraft basically that've been on the ground uh, for so long. What is the um, what is involved when an aircraft has been on? So they're using this as an opportunity perhaps to sort of refresh cabins and all that kind of thing. And I dare say there's a lot of airlines that are doing the same. Obviously, this is Etihad that are, that are doing this in the video that we were just playing there. But um, perhaps uh, perhaps if we could start with um, Peter on this one. What is the... Uh, when they've been doing... I mean, again, like, and Armando was saying at the top of the show, obviously, because he was, he was doing a bit of flaying with the uh, parachute plane, because obviously... Aircraft don't like to be sat on the ground. That's right. So um, you, if I perhaps talk specifically about the, the engines, um, probably the most valuable part of the whole aircraft, uh, very sensitive to many things, the environment. But one thing they don't like to be doing is sitting there doing nothing. And one of the things that's going to be required, which is one of my roles, is boroscoping. So all those aircraft that have been sat there require... Uh, boroscope inspection so that's one of the things they'll need to check for and if you've got aircraft sat there then well they have to be protected from birds insects sand the environment and you've got to stop stuff going in engines i mean a colleague of mine did an inspection found a live scorpion in the engine there's nothing wow. in the manual that says what do you do if you find <laughs> how, a live how scorpion you deal with that yeah absolutely you know and, and this is the thing because i mean you can put the you can put the 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 biggest amount of protection and stuff all over things like the mm. um, the the engine covers. I mean, you could do all the obvious things, but as you say, I mean, insects, mice, and all sorts will find their way in there. I mean, where on earth do you start with an inspection when they've been when there's been so many on the ground for so long? I would say engines is the most logical place because a lot of airlines, lease companies, and things are thinking about uh, the assets and they're thinking about cost and the time involved but of course as i'm just let the other gents talk about the other parts but um you know you've got a the engines have to be inspected um as just as a matter of course really 
um, any kind of deposits, things that have gone in the engine, a sandstorm, things like that. And that's, that's no go. That's got to be clean. That's got, you know, an engine wash and so on and so forth. So, you know. So, I mean, from a, from a pilot's point of view, uh, I'll throw this obviously to Andy. So you've got, um, I mean, I mean, I, I know there's, there's some, some, uh, procedures in place, if you like, to make sure that people's type ratings and things don't basically become invalid during this slightly odd time. But I mean, there, there's obviously, <laughs> I don't know, part of me sort of wonders if there was not a way of somehow getting some of the sort of training done, if you like, so that when we are able to sort of get back in the air, that you can, you can just, like go nuts. Well, I think that's the plan for my airline. So while we're furloughed, we can still undertake training. But it's just, and the training that we'll do as well won't be the standard license proficiency check or the other six monthly check that we do. It will be a return to service sort of package for us because pilot skills, as much as we like to say we're great, they go rusty if we don't fly. Um, and legally, still at the moment, we've got to do three takeoff and landings every 90 days. Right. But those can be done in the simulator. Okay. Um, a proper level D simulator and then as I said before all the licenses have been extended and the medicals have been extended in this situation to try and get us through but the things that we'd have to do in the sim really is just recapping certain emergency procedures um, and just proving that our knowledge is still there. I think as well that we have to do, we normally have to do a six monthly theoretical knowledge exam as well and at the moment we don't have to do that it was due in this month um, but they're going to put together a small tech refresher package for us as well okay yeah so so i mean that sort of thing you sort of if you like sort of doing some forward tr uh training and stuff uh, again P peter with your experience of engines and stuff is there is there some sort of ma you know is there like maintenance and stuff that can perhaps be brought forward um during this time perhaps um does it almost like yeah. get ahead before they they go back into service perhaps yeah you sort of yes and no there's there's it's possible there are things that need to be done but the logistics tend to, as I'm sure you will appreciate, take precedence. And if you've got to store that aircraft somewhere, if that aircraft is sat in a hangar waiting for um, checks to be done, then um, it's that's costing a different amount of money yeah. to if it's sat out, um, you know, at, at, a, at the cheapest possible airport uh, being being stored. But it's possible, but um, you know, really and truly, it's that's difficult i think in some small cases you, you might be able to do some maintenance i would imagine it all depends where the aircraft's been stored as well because mm. everywhere's got different take far north siberia in the winter temperatures drop to minus 40 rubber can perish um plastic parts can perish then in europe humidity can be a problem some mildew uh the middle east is mainly as uh, Peter said the uh, locusts, swarms of locusts can have 80 million locusts in, right in the middle of them and they get in all the holes. Um, Caribbean, salty and humid. So it all depends really where it's been stored on what work they can do. Now actually, because uh, obviously you're involved in the A320 podcast and episode 102 was more or less on, on this very subject, wasn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, that's right. Because a lot of people don't understand the difference between parking and storing an aircraft because they're two very different things. Okay. Mm. All right. Yes. Yeah, so. One of the, one of the things that I, I I thought the other day is that obviously we've this is not the first video we've seen of aircraft being stored and parked up across the globe, including in the UK. And all those aircraft have got the engine covers, like the pitot tube covers, 
and all the various covers that go on all the relevant parts of the aircraft. You know, we're used to storing a handful of aircraft in the UK with engine with proper engine covers and stuff on. Now we're storing hundreds and hundreds of aircraft that all need covers, that all need all the you know actual proper covers that go over all the various parts. There must be a shortage of these these specialist parts. Every aircraft comes with them. Ah, there we go. So it's part of your it, if if you're an airline that does a lot of long trips, it's that's called the flyaway kit. It's in there. All the parts are there for all the static ports, pitot, tube covers. It's it's again. It's a bit like when you buy a car and you get all the spare bulbs in the boot with the spare <laughs> tire. It's, so are these carried on bits. the aircraft at all times, then, Andy? Not the not the big stuff like that. No, no. Uh, we have the gear pins in ours for any maintenance stuff and certain flags for if the engines have been opened that they have to put in to make sure they close them properly. But the all the, the main covers stay in our central hangar. Okay. Now, here, here's a, a point. Um, so at Pittsburgh, I've seen a lot of the maintenance crews going out there and using, you know, speed tape and plastic covers for all those things that don't come with a cover. So the, the static ports, the uh, NACA vents, some of the exhaust ports, something like that. And I remember there was a mishap back in the late 80s or early 90s where there was an Aero Peru 737 that crashed into the ocean because it had duct tape over the AOA yeah, sen- oh, wow. the AOA sensors or the start- yeah. static ports when it was coming out of maintenance. So what risk mitigation techniques do you think the maintenance crews are taking nowadays to to assure that? Because there, there are those covers, but then there's all this extra stuff that they're putting on there. What do you guys think? Well, if I come in, I, I think it, it's quite simple, really. If something's not supposed to have a cover on it, then it doesn't have a cover on it, uh, according to the AMM. And if it does, it has the right one. If you haven't got it, you buy it, install it with the aircraft. Um, you made me remind me, um, remind me early on what Andy was saying. You know, I was chatting to one chap, uh, I think it was in Iceland, actually. He used to work across in North Canada, and he was saying that um, one of his jobs was uh, during that, period of time was to basically sit with the aeroplane with the packs on all day long while the aircraft was there so that nothing froze over uh, and they could fly out (laughs) literally just sat there packs on that's my job you know the environmental factors and mitigation of that i think maintenance can only do so much they have to check very before the aircraft is released and handed over to you guys that's got to be really thoroughly checked um then of course um, pilot has to go around and, and really kind of check again, but not quite to the same level because there's just not the time. Uh, engine intakes clear. We often see with boroscopes, we will often see, uh, you see something like a red deposit and you think, what's that? And you think, you know, a favourite thing for people to do is take the blank off something and leave it in the engine intake. The wind blows, goes uh, round, yeah, captain mm-hmm. comes up, has a look, or first officer. Nothing in the intake, engine started, down it goes, you know. So we, you have to be really careful. But also FOD, you know, uh, the, when everybody gets on the aircraft, uh, you know what happens. Uh, you, you go for your pockets, where's my boarding pass? You pull uh, all this junk out your pocket, goes onto the ground, blows down the air, airport. So the really, yeah, you, every, I think everybody has to really overlap each other and uh, just be careful about don't, FOD. Don't forget that all-important coin. 
you know, you toss oh, into good, the engine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that you toss good in the luck. engine. Yeah, absolutely. Good luck. Yeah, yeah it's, good it's, luck. It's, all good, it's all good luck. <laughs> Some airlines have come up with further mitigation measures, such as uh, writing in the tech log that they've opened the engine cowls and then having to write in the tech log again that they've closed them. Yeah. Um, okay. I've seen some other ones where they put a cover over the throttle quadrant, uh, like the covers, the levers, to show that they do maintenance. And once it's finished and they've checked everything, then they remove that cover. So obviously, if that's still left on, we know there's something not right. Um, but again, as Peter said, we've got to do check everything. The circuit breakers, which there's hundreds mm-hmm. of, we've got to make sure they're all in as well, and just try our best in the short time that we have doing the walk around that we try and cover all the major bits. I mean, presumably there's going to be, you know, when, when everybody does all go back to work, there's going to be perhaps people are going to take a little bit more time than they would normally, I guess, to do their walk around because yeah. they have been sort of sat on the ground for so long. What, what is the time limit that you're given, Andy, for your walk around? Is there a specific time that you you're, you have to take to walk do the walk rounds? No, there's, there's no time limit. Um, you, there is a prescribed route around the aircraft and what you're looking for Um it just, I guess it's people's nature. If it's freezing cold outside, you can try and look at that pretty quick. <laughs> if it's a lovely, warm, sunny day, you'll take your time walking around. Again, there's no time limit. You've just got to try and remain thorough and professional and do your job properly. But you can easily at times say the fueler comes up to you and wants the fuel figure or wants something signed. You can have missed a, a, a little bit that you didn't notice or even think about because sometimes you can do four walk rounds a day depending on the weather and who's flying the aircraft. So it can easily become very repetitive and then you can become complacent with it. So you've got to really, mm. really try every time. Interestingly, uh, we're getting a couple of questions for Peter, actually. Uh, here, This one's from Neil Lanwan in the chat room, and he's actually saying, what's the weirdest thing that you've ever found in an engine? <laughs> Hi, Neil. Um, that's a good question. I've heard stories of the people, nests of birds, um, to be honest, the weirdest things I've ever found in an engine, you can't really identify them. Uh, there was an engine that was out left in the desert. Um, in fact, um, it, you know, and it had what looked like some insect eggs. That's the only way thing I can describe it. When you've got a sensitive boroscope camera uh, with a very sensitive lens, and you can change the lens, something like a spider looks like King Kong, you know, yeah. and, and you, you're out. It'll be three o'clock in the morning or four o'clock in the morning and freezing cold and you're boroscoping, and all of a sudden the spider hits the lens, it's quite a shock. Um, but a colleague of mine had a job in the, over, uh, in the Far East where an aircraft, I think it was uh, Airbus, had been left for two years outside, and there was no preservation or anything done. And it wasn't so much finding stuff in the engine in that when he went into the cockpit and turned the packs on, a swarm of uh, Asian hornets came into the cockpit. Now, you can't just run <laughs> off. You can't run off because you're in charge of that aircraft. For that. So that literally it was shirts up like this and just try and remain calm. So these are all considerations because they get, they'll get right in and make themselves at home. <laughs> Wow. Okay. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, we do love to get pictures of where people are watching 
the show from. Ooh. And uh, as always, Mr. Warner is very much hard at work in his train. Uh, that's always very comforting. <laughs> uh, <laughs> thanks for that. And uh, Armando, you've got a couple of uh, uh, critters um, who have, well, they look like they've nodded off, I've got to be honest. Uh, <laughs> oh, Lois Lane is still listening. Benny. Benny and the Jets, not so much. Right, I think he's, yes, absolutely. He's yeah, yeah, I, Those I, are my two puppies. The, the short, short answer to that story is clearly by this picture, you are spoiling them. Look, they are very, making yourself no. very. Oh, <laughs> all right, for some, isn't it? So, right. moving on, we have got obviously um, one of the best audio visual producers in the entire country uh, on the show, as in Neville Bynes. Now, Nev, you've been busy putting together a little something. Yes, well, of course. Normally, by this time of the year, we would have gone to an air show or we've done a listener meet-up or something like that. And here we are at the end of April, having done none of that. And the next scheduled thing we've got in the diary probably is the Malta air show in uh, September. At the end of September, I hope we're going to that, by the way, because I just can't face the prospect of uh, of, of not being there. But uh, So what I thought I would do, uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to play out a bit of video uh, of some of the things that we've been up to over the last you know four or five years and uh, it's a bit of fun and there's a lot of sunshine as well so that's nice to see oh my goodness me so many memories coming back from that that yeah. was really good Nev well done so oh thanks um, also oh, of course we saw uh, John Hutchinson there and it is the fine gentleman's birthday today as well ah, he's hey. 83 years young oh. and him and his wife Sue are all well uh, I think we're a bit frustrated he can't get on one of his nice cruise ships that he does his talks on but uh, uh, we got a we sent uh, John a video uh, of us uh, saying happy birthday to him I got a nice reply mm. this morning from him as well which was uh, great so many happy returns indeed John mm. Definitely. There's some nice memories there, Nev, I will say. Yeah. Yes, and uh, there's plenty more where that came from. I'm going to have to keep chewing these out every week, I think, just to sort of <laughs> keep, keep the motivation up. Yeah, uh, because, yeah, so uh, I've already finished the next one, uh, which will play out next week, and I'll yeah. do a bit more work over the weekend, and we'll uh, put some more together. But, Excellent. Uh, yeah, it's some nice stuff that we did. Really, really, really pleased it went to some of those events. Very much so. And so, don't, don't forget, guys and girls, oh. by the way, uh, if you're listening to the audio version of this show, uh, the video oh, yeah, will definitely. be available at around about 10 a.m. when this is published uh, on iTunes. Uh, other podcast apps are available, of course. Uh, the, that highlights package will be available for you, and I'll make sure that there's a link to that directly in the show notes because it's, it's only a couple of minutes long, but uh, it's, uh, it, it's oh, I, I, I just uh, the Duxford meet-up. Every time I see video or footage from that, I've got so many good memories from, from that. It was it was a lot of fun it was a lot of fun uh so before we move on to uh the military section uh when obviously we're gonna have a chat with with peter and andy uh later on so do uh start getting your questions in when we start doing that but uh, we've got a new little uh, uh segment that we're going to do this week nev haven't we Yes, an occasional segment, although I think we've got there's so much material for this this kind of thing, hmm. uh, you never know how long it will go on for. But Good point. Uh, you may have um, noticed that I, I get a bit irritated about some of the way that some of the media reports uh, these uh, aviation stories occasionally, and just occasionally they, they get things wrong. I mean, who would have thought? Um, and um, so this is a segment that we're going to call... Uh, what are we calling it again? I've forgotten. That's, that's not very good, is it? Uh, yes, groan of the week. Uh, very much so. Okay, so uh, with all of these things, there's there's loads of the story. There's loads of stories, isn't there? But uh, really, we we only have the. Oh, that's good, isn't it? When the technology doesn't work, that was supposed to have played something really exciting. But uh, anyway, uh, a drum roll, please. I think. 
Uh, so, uh, Nev, uh, could you perhaps announce who is this week's media fail? Well, after considerable adjudication, <laughs> which lasted about a minute and a half, <laughs> I'm awarding it to the Daily Mail. Oh, very and, good. Uh, for, for running the story... We clap at this point. <laughs> Maybe no, not. That was, that was last night at 8 o'clock, Andy. You should have been doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So give us some details then, Dave. What was it all about? We'd love to show the picture of this as well. Oh, okay. So the, the, right. the, the, the first story. It's about the, the charter plane full of Romanian fruit pickers uh, will land at Stansted tomorrow, it says. So that's all great. And it's going to be a Boeing 737 charter plane. So that that's great as well. That's, everything's fine. So you scroll down, you see a nice... Picture, picture of a person picking some fruit and then you see a Boeing 737 MAX at an incredibly <laughs> high angle of attack um, so there's an irony there straight away isn't yes, there absolutely. Um, uh, looks like he's just, just doing a bit of Farnborough display or, or something Let's like that doesn't so. it so, yeah. <laughs> so it, won't, it won't be that aircraft they'll be going on will it as it's, uh, uh, you know, as it's, as it's grounded um, but it, it took them some time to, uh, to recover uh, when they, they, they then brought out the, the second version uh, sometime later um, when they uh, did concede it was actually an Airbus A320 oh, very good. Uh, <laughs> and they show a picture of said Airbus 320 um, further down in the story landing at Stansted which is one of uh, Titan Airways is uh, ones that they have um, but uh, yeah but a bit of a fail there lads so, so well, <laughs> well well done then well yeah. we, we'd love to make a sort of semi-regular feature of this guys so please uh, your eyes are all over the place <laughs> wonderful chat room and our wonderful wonderful listeners please do send in your media fails or as we're going to call it Nev's groan of the week uh, please send them into podcast at plain talkinguk.com that is podcast at plain talkinguk.com or why not send it to us on whatsapp our whatsapp number is plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six that's plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six Jonathan Warner quite accurately says he thinks that the Daily Fail will win this one quite often. <laughs> yes, I think, I think he's probably right there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's always nice for them to, you know, uh, I'm sure there'll be other uh, papers and newspapers that'll they'll get a look in as well, won't they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There we go. There we go, yes. So it's time for the military. So I think we should hand things over to, uh, to Armando. Yeah, guys, so we were going to skip it, but Jonathan Warner did join us a little bit later in the show, so I guess we must do it. Especially, <laughs> probably, yeah. So, in that case, Matt, if you're ready to push your button, Here go we ahead. So this first story is in the few days since the Thunderbirds unprecedented flyover to thank COVID-19 responders responders in Southern Nevada, members of the world famous flight demonstration team say they've been deeply moved by the reaction on social media. They also want the community to know that it took a massive team effort to work out the flight plan, allowing the Thunderbirds to fly over more than a dozen hospitals from North Las Vegas to Boulder City. Once we got to McCarran Airport, uh, they brought everybody throughout the valley, uh, said Colonel Kevin DeFalco, which, who is the Thunderbirds Director of Operations. 
North Las Vegas, Henderson, Boulder City, everyone really came together. It took a lot of dedicated planning, a lot of effort, a lot of coordination, and a lot of different agencies, local government as well, to support the effort. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel DeFalco says the team is also appreciative of the response that they've seen on social media, including the many pictures and videos of thousands of people on the ground as the F-16 formation flew over their heads. There were stories of backyards, neighbors cheering across the walls or fences, and that's what the the city really needed at this time, Uh, bringing everyone together for a common cause to show their support for the community and our first responders our frontline workers, medical workers, and all the central personnel who are keeping our city up and running. We've done lots of flyovers, said uh, Captain Michael Brewer, who flies the Thunderbird number three jet, but this one is very, very special given the circumstances. What's really heartwarming is that we are truly coming together as one team, one fight, both in the Air Force and in the civilian population, he added. Brewer said, to the best of his recollection, he can't think of another time when the Thunderbirds has ever done a flyover encompassing an entire city, much less an, a geographical area that large. During the, the flyover, Captain Brewer said he was focusing on his job, so he was unable to see anyone on the ground, uh, but Lieutenant Colonel DeFalco said he was in the gray F-16 flanking the formation for safety reasons. I absolutely had the opportunity to look outside quite a few times, take a peek down towards the hospitals and facilities, and saw people out there with their arms in the sky. You can just tell that they were cheering and clapping and happy. In fact, I did see on the ground in Boulder City quite a few cars pulled up to the side with people standing out front, even a a few flags waving. Both pilots also stressed how important it is for them, uh, to them, for everyone to realize that they're part of the community too, which is why they felt the need to find a way to thank everyone in the front lines battling the epidemic. Uh, Las Vegas is a special place to us. It is our home. It's where we live, where our children go to school, where our families are. It was, an incredible, it was incredible to show our support for the local community and tell them thank you and allowing us to be part of this support network as we battle this pandemic. Uh, this is a small gesture that the Air Force can make, that the Thunderbirds can make for the city. Truly awesome, said Captain Brewer. What's really heartwarming is that we are truly coming together as one team, one fight, both in the Air Force and in the civilian population. Now we've got, so, we've got a nice video here. What What's that all about? Yeah, so this is in-flight footage from the cockpit, and the Thunderbirds are always uh, an av geek's dream to listen to in the way they communicate when they're flying. And uh, this is pretty funny because I saw a meme on social media that they were not abiding to social distance rules by flying closer. <laughs> so close than, together, right, yeah. yeah. But uh, okay. just... Just listen to this audio as the Thunderbirds fly over Las Vegas. Number one, ready for takeoff, right, three left. Roger, for takeoff, three left. Wind, calm. Contact departure, good day. Thunderbirds, ready for takeoff, right, three left. Thunderbirds, push six. Yeah. We'll be taking off for the Las Vegas flyover. Las Vegas flyover, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Roger, Thunderbirds, airborne, passing 3,500 for 5,000. Go, 
perhaps you could just explain a bit uh, the images that we're seeing here that Armando while they're not talking yeah so these guys well you can tell that they're not having any fun at all flying <laughs> yeah right <laughs> but they are they are flying in their arrowhead formation uh, every time that there's uh, it's almost like uh, like marching if you were ever in the military where there's a, a preparatory command and a command of execution and as they go from formation to formation they initiate their turns they hit their turn points they are there is one leader that is essentially preparing the formation and then they execute all together like that they're all on the same page they know exactly what's coming in the seconds ahead and it's just a amazing from a air crew discipline point of view just the way they they fly I mean, it's about. It's, I mean, for us, obviously, it's like the red arrows is is the thing for us, isn't it? And it's uh, anything like this is just sort of mind blowing, isn't it? The the skills involved in, in such close formation and stuff. But it's some great. I, just say, I, I, I thought that the RT sounded like the ground control frequency at JFK. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to be able to talk like that at work. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that being allowed? Absolutely. Uh, so now it's, uh, you know, not one to be outdone by us Brits, obviously. Uh, there was a little bit of a, a military uh, sort of fly pass. There's a little air, there was, believe it or not, an air show going on. Uh, now, the video was posted on Facebook back on the 10th of April um, by a chap by the name of Martin Bridge. And this was sent to me by one of my friends uh, who works over at Look East uh, uh, here in the UK. And uh, so, I mean, it's not quite to the level uh, of the Thunderbirds here. But, you know, I think this is not a bad attempt, actually. Uh, it's just posted by the RAF uh, Coningsby Spotters group as well. Uh, you know, I think this is a nice touch. Um, there's some attention to detail with models here as well, I think. You know, we've even got the smoke coming out of the back of the Red Arrows there, busy doing doing a loop. Oh, dear, we, we might have just seen the hand there on the model. But uh, I, I love this. What a great way to kill uh, some lockdown time, isn't it? <laughs> I gotta admit, it's a pretty amazing air show, and the <laughs> sounds accompanying each of these aircraft yeah. is pretty accurate. Absolutely, details are detail. You, you, we even got some cockpit noise there. Yeah, it's, it's just like oh, that, that's, that's where mum's coming to do with my daughter in the garden this week. I think oh. I've found her. Yeah, absolutely. What have we got lined up on the runway here on Monday? You'll be able to identify this. Oh, I think that's a tornado. Is it? Mm, yeah, it looks good. like a tornado. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, okay. Uh, it seems to have stalled on the way. But anyway, uh, you get the... I mean, as I say, far be it from uh, for, for us Brits to be outdone by the Thunderbirds. I mean, we can't possibly allow that, can we? So uh, <laughs> there we go. Anyway. Well, you know, there, there's a couple of people in the chat room that are saying that they prepared the Red Arrows. I will never take sides as to which of these demonstration teams is the best one because they're all very unique. And I always said, even though I was partial to the Thunderbirds, I love the Red Arrows show. I think the Red Arrows... Uh, just do a little bit different kind of show, and, and there's some some uh, maneuvers that only they do, which are pretty pretty impressive. Oh, and of course, what, what was nice uh, the the summer? Do you remember last summer when when we were allowed outside, and because um, the, the, they they did a tour of the states, didn't they? And and it, it was one of those rare occasions where at some air shows you got to see both the Thunderbirds and. Uh, the Red Arrows, which uh, was great, wasn't it? It's Actually, sort of... controversial in the chat room. Laura Davis, she uh, prefers the Blue Angels, uh, but the Thunderbirds oh. are fun. 
Ah, the Blue Angels. Now, now, which what? What are the Blue Angels? What's that? Explain. That the Blue Angels is the U.S. Navy demonstration team. Right. Okay. So they are flying the F-18s, uh, and they've just, I believe, this year have upgraded to the Super Hornet. So they're they're going to have a great show for 2021, I imagine. Wow. Okay. Owen's saying in the chat room that uh, he thinks that the blue the blue show off their aircraft uh, so so well. Uh, what a wonderful display they do as well. So yes, I think it's right that we're name checking the, the <laughs> them as well. Uh, saw them in t- Toronto. Uh, oh yes, that's right. Uh, it was um, Steve and Ivy, Doctor Steph, and Auntie Liz, wasn't it? They got together, I think, and saw them in Toronto, which was nice. Um, but uh, the Reddos are great uh, when the Brits uh, allow them to perform. Of course, that was the most embarrassing thing about oh, uh, about Farber, wasn't it? When when the Brit when the Americans all came over for it, and we were like, "Yes, you're going to love the Red Arrows. They're amazing. They'll knock spots off." And then the, all they were allowed to do was basically a glorified fly past, which ruined <laughs> it a bit. But uh, anyway, there we are. Uh, on to the Carlos. The next military story is with you. Ah, this one, yes, this is on theaviationist.com. And uh, this particular aircraft, this story goes on about, I swear this is a DC-3 in disguise. Anyway, this uh, US and Russian media depict starkly different narratives of Russian Navy IL-38N intercept by Alaskan F-22s. As reported in the international media, US Air Force F-22 Raptors supported by KC-135's Stratotankers and E-3 AWACS aircraft responded to a pair of Russian military Aleutian IL-38Ns, anti-submarine warfare and maritime patrol aircraft off the Alaskan coast in international airspace on Wednesday, April the 8th. But the differences in how the story is being reported around the world uh, is interesting study and how journalism may influence our interpretation of events depending on where we live. The Russian uh, Navy IL-38 Dolphins, NATO's reporting name, uh, were escorted and monitored on Wednesday during routine North American Air Defense Com- uh, Command, NORAD, surveillance of the Alaskan Air Defense Identification Zone and were met by the US Air Force F-22s over the Bering Sea, north of Alaska's remote Aleutian Islands. As unusual, the Russian IL-38s never entered US or Canadian airspace and were flying within international regulations for planned military training exercises. To the credit of NORAD and the public affairs team who spoke to the aviationist on Friday uh, last week, the official USAF NORAD account of the story is journalistically balanced. Unfortunately, the US military sources could not provide photos Uh, from the flight of the F-22s with the Russian IL-38s because of a time time of day issue, according to official sources, theavenish.com said. Japanese uh, self-defence forces provide one photo of the Russian IL-38s since the sun had come up by the time the aircraft were near Japan. The Russians issued a statement saying the IL-38 aircraft activity was part of a planned training exercise by <laughs> Russian forces that began in the region on March the 30th. Russian state sponsors TASS or TASS News outlet reported that TU-142 and IL-38 anti-submarine warfare aircraft were operating from the aerodromes in the Premier region and the Kamatka uh, mouthful there after a few beers. The report went on to say... Kamchatka. 
Kamchaka, thank you for that, right. uh, Armando. Uh, the report went on to say that the Russian Pacific Fleet kicked off a series of tactical drills in the distant maritime zone in the Far East involving over 20 naval aviation aircraft and helicopters. The reports about the exercise were from the official Russian fleet media releases. At some points, the camera, that K word that Armando's good at saying, <laughs> region of Russia lies approximately a thousand miles from Alaska's Aleutian Island arc in the northern Pacific. The neutral Alaskan air defense identification zone mostly extends 200 miles off the US Alaskan coast. Aircraft from any country entering the international identification zone are required to radio their planned destination and course to air traffic control authorities in that region. Aircraft are also required to use radar transponder in the AADIZ that constantly transmits their identification, speed, course, altitude to air traffic controllers to both civil and military. Um, the story does go on quite a fair amount on this uh, this one, but it's. Yeah. Um, I mean, they, they. I mean, they're always conducting these exercises, as we know here <laughs> in the U- across the UK here, because obviously we um, scramble our quick response or QFA um, quick response aircraft here from as a glossy mouth here in the UK. Yeah, that's right, Carlos. And that just goes to show that while the rest of the world is kind of taking a pause, these military chess games and political chess games continue and all over the world there are aircraft flying and and operations as normal i just saw uh, another video or, or some pictures from the pacific where there was some aircraft participating in an elephant walk so i, I think there were b1s or b52s along with some fighter jets and, and this was just a, a day or two ago so the, the military posturing continues even though the rest of the world is is taking a bit of a pause is it just me Armando, or, or does that honestly not look like a, like a c-47 or a dc-3 I, I think it definitely looks like a uh, a p3 ski okay <laughs> a, <laughs> an upside down c-130 with a russian star on the side yeah. oh, well, they said they said it was an optical illusion I'm sure all these pictures are taken by iPhones and I I love how everything is just posted on Twitter now. That's the the intelligence source of choice. Uh, in fact, you can always rely on, on Uncle Micah here with a bit of a... He said, remember, let's not forget that uh, Captain Nick used to intercept Russian bear bombers in his F4 back in the day. So, I mean, the, these these chess games, if you like, have been going on for for years and years and probably will continue to do so for centuries, won't they? Oh, most certainly, <laughs> most certainly. So, Nev, you've got the next story on a uh, big one, uh, joining the fight against COVID. <laughs> That's what she said. Uh, yes. <laughs> well... Of course, uh, the COVID-19 thing, there's been some extraordinary logistics and cargo operations, but this one is incredible, I think. This is on the popularmechanics.com website, and it says that the world's largest cargo aircraft, full of medical supplies to combat the COVID-19 pandemic, touched down in Warsaw on Tuesday. The aircraft lifted off the day before from China, carrying personnel protective, sorry, personal protective equipment, including masks and medical testing equipment. Uh, the lift was reportedly the largest cargo cargo shipment by air by volume, filling four-fifths of the massive aircraft's cavernous hold. Uh, The American Journal of Transportation reports that the aircraft departed from uh, the China airport on April the 13th, stopping in Almaty uh, Airport in Kazakhstan for refuelling and to allow the crew to rest. 
The aircraft was loaded with about 100 tonnes of medicines, tests for laboratory analysis, uh, medical masks and other protective equipment with a total load of about 1,000 uh, cubic metres. Uh, in, in the history of aviation, this cargo volume has never been transported inside the cargo hold of an aircraft. According to Antonov Airlines, the operator of the AN-225, the big jet has an internal cargo volume of 1,200 cubic metres, or 40 2,377 cubic feet. The AN225 is also capable of lifting a maximum of 51, sorry, 551,155 pounds or 275 tonnes. Poland's order of medical supplies from China weighs a total of 200 tonnes, but it is light enough. Uh, it occupies significant volume, so the shipment is being split into two AN225 flights of 100 tonnes each. So, uh, yeah, wow. in- incredible. Can, can I just say, we, we were talking a minute ago, guys, sorry, Nev, about the maintenance stuff. This, this that says on the story that you're reading, Nev, that this, this jet has come fresh from an 18-month overhaul. Wow. Yeah, that's right. So I think we did a story on that just a few weeks ago where in October of 2018, this one aircraft went into uh, an upgrade program and just came out in March. So it's only been back in the air since in the past few weeks and it's already being put to use which is great to see uh there's a small point of order from uh the chat room by the way from uh laura davis a slight complaint here she said we said that word we we said the covid19 oh. and nobody oh, took a drink sorry. We, oh, uh, yeah, i know come on, come on come oh, on sorry <laughs> Come along. Cheers. See, this is what this is what we love about the chat room. Obviously, they're always keeping us on our toes. You see, that's yep. fantastic. Uh, thank you, Laura, for uh, highlighting our slight slip up there. Uh, <laughs> fantastic. So, story number uh, story number four this mm. week. A very very poignant story. Yeah, and also, Armando, I noticed you 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 very kindly posted this on our on our our Facebook feed, didn't you? Actually, uh, a, a great uh, a great story here. Yeah, guys, this week does mark the 50th anniversary of Apollo 13. If you remember, it was a lunar mission, which NASA later regarded as, quote, a successful failure. Um, Although Apollo 13's crew did not or could not uh, complete their original mission of landing on the moon, uh, there was an explosion. They they had to go watch the movie. (laughs) Go watch the movie because it's great. It's a Tom Hanks movie. Pretty much uh, gives you the whole whole story. But uh, the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum – is doing a special series. They've done some live talks, some live chats, and uh, even more special is they've posted a uh, 40th anniversary Apollo 13 video from 2010, which features flight director Gene Kranz. If you guys remember in the movie, he was famous for wearing his his white leather uh, vest, and he wore that for numerous, numerous missions. But uh, it has Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes, Ken Mattingly, uh, and it's introduced by John Glenn. So we'll post the link in the uh, in the PTUK Facebook uh, as well as the show notes. Um, go watch. It's an hour and a half long. It's an amazing speech by this crew in, in just a very unguarded way and, and pretty humorous in, in the way that they describe the events of, of that entire mission. So... Um, Go check it out over on YouTube. If you want to go full geek, and I mean real geek, on YouTube there are the entire recordings of the flight director's loop of the incident. Oh, wow. With 
everybody else getting involved and it's just a massive noise. And Gene Crown somehow manages, I have no idea how, to listen to everybody and work everything out. It's just a masterclass, or masterclass, depending on where you're from, in <laughs> failure management. It is beautiful. And there are good three, four hours of it on there. Oh, wow. It's brilliant. I mean, I love everything to do with Apollo. I use the font Futura. If anybody wants to use it, that's the font that's used for all <laughs> documentation. It's fantastic. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. In fact, Mike has gone so far as to say in the chat room here that Apollo 13 movie was almost 98% accurate. Uh, Chris Griggs has quite rightly pointed out, don't tell APG because that's a little bit over their 50% that they like to go for. So, uh, yes, quite. It's uh, <laughs> it's uh, as anything to do with stuff like this. I mean, I, I, the whole the whole flying flying in general. Don't get me started on helicopters, obviously. Uh, but uh, yeah, this I was all... uh, I was quite a young fellow when uh, this all happened, of course. And uh, I remember being absolutely glued to the television. Mm. Everybody was uh, wishing the crew, you know, hoping they were going to come back safely. But uh, but it really was touch and go for quite a while. And mm. uh, my goodness, everybody was so relieved. Very Mike has Mike has just made a great Dave? point there. Um, <laughs> as the podcast thirty minutes to the moon. It's a series, and if you listen to it, it explains it all brilliantly, how they did everything. Uh, that's right. So that'll be on the BBC Sounds app. It's uh, the BBC. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's called 13 Minutes to the Moon. Um, uh, if it's on BBC Sounds, it's also likely, I guess, in the States to be available uh, via iTunes, because I know they publish a lot of their stuff on there as well. But uh, yeah, And I won't go on about it anymore, but there's another one on Netflix about Apollo 11 that just came out recently, full high-def video footage of it all and lots of bits and pieces that I'd never really seen before. It's great. Mm. Uh, Laura Laura Davis, actually, last point will will sound, Laura Davis, as I said, there's a whole uh, website out uh, about it um, with the mission, uh, with the full mission transcripts, pics, videos, and all the loops. Uh, It's, you know, Apollo in real time. Uh, And uh, Dr. Steph uh, saying that there's also a Twitter account that tweets the events in real time that it actually happened in. So there are lots of geekery there uh, in this very boring time, let's be honest. (laughs) So as everyone will know, we've got two very special guests on the show this week. And uh, we've got Andy and Peter, both from two very different parts of the aviation industry. Andy uh, being a captain on the Airbus A320, and Peter being a guy who looks after all the engines and bits and pieces and does the inspections. So, Andy, we'll have a chat with you first. Andy, obviously, we haven't had you on the show for a while. Uh, how's, uh, how's life been treating you? Uh, yeah. In fact, since the last time I was on the show, I've moved house three times. Wow. <laughs> Did you say three? Three, three times, yeah. Um, but this is the forever home now, back in the northeast where I belong. Um <laughs> It's the, it's the only me. place that they'll have you, mate. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Um, yeah, so just ticking along the airline. I've moved base now. I'm up in Manchester, um, which is lovely. To be, it's closer to home, but uh, not quite home because home is the northeast. I'm up in Durham. Um, yeah, and I mean, you had Matt on the other week. He was telling you about everything that we've been doing with the podcast and uh, and the lounge, and we keep adding more stuff to that as well. So yeah, everything's great, and I'm loving. Absolutely loving lockdown. It gives you, obviously, we well, as we know, some of us love to dabble with the flight sims and stuff. I, I'm guessing that um, we, we spoke to Matt last week in regards to he was, I think he was on the verge of a possible divorce if he had 
purchased X-Plane 11 um, as much as I tried to persuade him to buy it. But uh, is that something you sort of play with at home? Have you got a flight sim at home or anything you... Um... That's that's where I started, flight sim, really. Uh, uh, all the way back to FS95. Oh, funny. And now I've, I'm running at the moment. I mean, I haven't touched it in a long time. I've got uh, a P3D. I'm not an X-Plane kind of guy. <laughs> I, I like the mad dog on there. Just quite good to fly, but yeah, I haven't touched flight simulator in a long time because the last thing I really want to do after spending five days <laughs> flying an say. aircraft is to come <laughs> yeah. home and sit in front of a computer yeah. and that would probably result in a divorce. <laughs> right? Yes, good point. Yes, <laughs> that's a good point. Oh, yeah. So uh, was, obviously was... you're, you're enjoying. You're still obviously you're flying the three twenty for the airline that you fly for here in the yeah. UK. Is it just a three twenty? Are you are you flying three nineteens as well? 19, yeah, while well, we've still got yeah. them. I think this uh, whole crisis will hasten their um, removal from the airline. And we've got 21s as well. And you're flying a 21 as well? Uh, haven't had the chance yet because we don't have any in Manchester, but some okay. were due to come this summer, but we'll just have to wait and see now what happens. Excellent. So, any P- questions from Peter? You got any questions for, P- uh, from, for you, Peter, to Andy? Um, well, uh, are you looking forward to the new version of Flight Simulator? That's I know you said you're not. Gonna, I know. That, I know that you said you're not got a lot of time, and you kind of don't want to do it when you get home. But you've seen there's a new one coming out. I have, yes. And in the past, I was heavily involved. I mean, again, this is getting geeky. There's an aircraft, the FS Labs A320 for Flight Simulator. I was heavily involved in uh, in that, um, but. The new one looks really good. I just don't understand how it works being streamed online and all that sort of stuff. My my technical level with computers goes so far. I mean, ask Matt, if I do the podcast with, quite often I'm texting him going, I don't know how to do this on the computer. Can you tell me? It's all right for us, though. You see, we have easy access to a Nev. Uh, he's going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Peter, actually, we're, we're starting to get some questions in uh, from the chat yes. room for you here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so this one's from Tony. Yes, he's saying, question for Peter. We know modern jet engines are more efficient, uh, but with numerous high-profile engine failures, do you think modern jets are less reliable than their predecessors? It's well, a good question, um, Tony, yeah. Um, so, I mean, you look at things like CFM 56, V2500, and they kind of carry on quite nicely, Airbus 737 and so on. And then you look at some of the trends and you think uh, for a company like Rolls-Royce, who I used to work with, and my grandparents, World War II, they were typists in the office when the Lancaster bomber came in, in Derby, where I'm from. And you think, well, what's going on? You know, you've got uh, uh, the... Um, leap engine the rotobow issue on startup and you know, all sorts of little bits and pieces uh here there and everywhere I, I think what's happening is that people are trying to push things forward really quickly if you look at anything you look at the last hundred years compared to the last three or four hundred years and the rate of increase in technology and engineering increases um, massively um and i think there's a risk that things can go a little bit too fast but at the same time there are some advances to trying to make things lighter and stronger and of course more efficient i think um so i think uh if if i was to sum it up i'd say let's not reinvent the wheel guys let's uh, look at the things that do work keep using them uh but uh yeah i reliability the turbine engines are possibly one of the most reliable engines they're just used they don't get much wear really you know unlike a 
traditional piston engine. So, um, I, but the, the level of safety, the level of checks that are done by everybody, pilots, engineers, and everything—you know—you're in good hands, really. So that's what I will say. Actually, while well, we've got we've got another question from Tony here, we'll stick with with him if we may. So uh, he's saying, do you find that the higher mounted engines on the T-tail suffer less wear or damage? I think in terms of ingesting fod from the ground, so for example, uh, gravel, stones, um, you know, when you apply power, most runways and aprons are pretty clear, but you only need to get uh, to a certain airport and get too close. Uh, it's not even a case of getting too close as the wind picks up uh, sandy environments. I suppose there's an argument that they, the higher uh, mounted engines get less uh, ingest less but as part of my job most engines i see are on wing rather than on tail um there's a handful of business jets and things and um uh, it's, it's, you don't really nothing really massively noticeable in terms of the differences with uh, fod ingestion and so on and i think that's credit to airport authorities keeping the places fairly clear uh, but I would say there's a good argument, certainly if you're landing on slightly rough runway um, where there is loose material, as let's say you're doing some kind of extra terrain flight, you know, they're, they're testing smaller jets at the moment to see if they can land them on um, wet grass at the moment. This is one of the things they're trying to do. And they really put them through the paces and, they, you know, mud and water goes down the engines. A friend of mine is involved with that locally. He actually is, is an agricultural worker and he sprays the runways, the grass, to get it waterlogged. And that's an interesting job. So, yeah, I think uh, you could probably argue there's a bit less, but you need to remember that the power, I'm sure you appreciate the power from these jets, the intakes. Um, you know, take a 757. If you're stood near where the nose wheel is or in front of the uh, nose when full power is applied, you're going down that engine. There's no two ways about it. So the height, you know... It's a, it is a factor, but basically anything close to those, uh, say, you know, out of those safety zones is is going to go down the engine, unfortunately. When you're when you're doing those boroscopic inspections on the engines, um, Peter, with yes. the cat with the little cameras, how long is it? What's the general time it takes to do, like, say, a, a CFM fifty? So um, it depends on the sort of check you're doing. If you're doing, for example, what we call a hot section, which is a very typical check that you might do on a regular basis either because it's something that has to be done or because there is a known defect that has a repeat inspection cycle on it which could be hours or cycles of that engine and um, so a hot section inspection two to three hours maybe uh, depending a full engine inspection really depends on the obviously on the size of the engine because remember you're looking at every single blade in that engine so you be looking at two to four thousand blades maybe and um so cfm 56 is is best part of a day really uh it depends how you do it and it, it really is fundamentally down to how well the aircraft is prepared before you get there before we arrive to do the job and how and what sort of setup you've got if you have to do it outside i've had to do it outside in st whichever storm it was the last one i was outside doing a boroscope inspection and um, you have to be very careful because if it gets too windy, you can't carry on. Uh, so hot sections, two to three hours. You have to video record the whole inspection. It's a requirement. Um, and a full engine inspection, a big CF6 engine, very um, tricky to inspect because the ports are all over the place, is going to be a day or more 
to do a full engine inspection. And then, of course, you find something, you find a defect that's got to be measured. You have to consult the maintenance manual. You have to make a decision. Can this fly or not? What sort of repeats is going to be required? Do I need to contact the manufacturer? And that cascade effect means it takes much more time. And that can have a knock-on effect to the airline and the logistics and the planning. So, yeah. Nev, and... Uh over that cross in Buckinghamshire. Any, any questions for you, from you for uh, Peter? Yeah, I was going to ask him, actually. Um, Peter, how, uh, with, you know, you were talking about the, the you know, the Trent yes. 1000s and, yeah. and all the rest of it. Um, obviously, it's all about fuel saving now, isn't it? It's all about efficiency of the engine. Um, we were talking about reliability, but actually, of course, these uh, in, are into incredible numbers of uh, etops. You know, you hear yeah, about yeah. two hundred and seventy minutes etops and, and longer. What uh, are you involved with those etops inspections of the aircraft of the engines when they're on the aircraft as well? Sometimes, um, if I'm honest, most of the work that I have been doing has been uh, short to medium haul jets. Um, well, the shortest haul sort of A319, 320, 73. Um, and uh, yeah, there are, again, there's, there's this whole swathe of different checks that you, you have to do for, for ETOPS. And does the, does, do you need an APU or not? You know, if you're going ETOPS, you're going to probably need to have that APU. And of course, ferry flights, if there's a known issue, you can get special permission to take an aircraft outside and around to get it to where it needs to go to to have the work done. But I'm not really greatly involved with the ETOP side of things. Do you inspect the APU as well? Is that, is that part of your Yeah, job? It's, it's just another jet engine. And yeah. although it's less frequent, typically we'll get a request for uh, both engines on uh, twin engine and the APU as well. So I'm going to allow myself just a, a, a supplementary question. Yeah, sure. As, oh, as, as, say. They say, as they say <laughs> in the five o'clock uh, briefings, um, sure. why is it that um, APUs seem to have a built-in unreliability i don't know how many aircraft i've been on they've had to do a cross bleed start because the apus failed um it seems to be quite a lot i don't know whether it's just me or whether that is the case well i i think that the other chaps will probably know i mean they do a lot of hours um yeah. when you look at apu maintenance manuals some of them will give you uh, limits that you can allow for you find a for example a crack in a blade you're allowed a certain number of 0.0045 inches or something Others simply say, if you find damage, remove it and get a new one. Um, but I would, my suggestion would be that they're often started up and they're run for long periods of time, shut down, started up again, shut down, and it tends to be quite a quick turn. That's that's my theory, anyway. Yeah. So yeah, we, bl blaming the flight crew, I think that's. Yeah, we, no, no, we, no, no, no. We don't look after them. That is the base. <laughs> we do not look after them. Mm. When we, we shut them down, we shut them down on a forty-minute turnaround and then start them up again. That's not healthy. There's no, it doesn't have the required cooling time and to allow the temperatures to dissipate. So that really messes them up. And then as well, people don't shut them down properly, especially on the three twenty. If you shut them down, then just turn the batteries off. It leaves the inlet flap open, and that's not good for them, which I'm sure Pete has seen many times before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I've got a couple of questions for you, Peter. Yeah, please, please. Have you worked on the Leap engine? No, I haven't actually. I've um, my I've got a number of colleagues who do, but I haven't specifically worked. I know of it, but I yeah. haven't worked on it myself. For the fan blades, what sort of different checks would you have to do because they are 
horrible well, it's a, composite uh, it's a blisk i don't it's out of my area of expertise really because of this blisk if anybody listening it's a sort of continual piece of uh, engineering uh, creativity uh, probably worth upwards of a quarter of a million and the rest you know just for that one element uh, generally fan blades are inspected as part of um, some of the i don't know if it's c checks or whatever but um, they, they will take them out and, uh, and have a really good look uh, on all of the air, in, aircraft. But with the Blisk, of course, it's, it's unique. And this is all new stuff. In terms of boroscoping, it's all brand new stuff. It's a, bra- a pretty much brand new engine. And a lot of people are getting uh, issues where they have to, for example, do a 360-degree check of a particular area of that engine. Because normally you put the boroscope in and you turn the engine around and see the blades. Uh, so this is more the internal side. But there are issues where people are looking at the maintenance manual and saying, you know, we're going to get stuck in the engine if, uh, if we go down there. So it, it's all quite new stuff, and the maintenance manual is being changed as we go. But the Blisk, uh, yeah, I mean, there's certainly a very detailed visual inspection, and you'll be getting a non-destructive testing taking place. Uh, there's all sorts of um, technologies using uh, sound and X-ray that they can look through the blades, and that is a very advanced area, definitely eddy currents and so on. So, yeah. And what sort of materials are they using in the core of the engine? Because when we start the things up, mm. a, a CFM56, bang, straight away, no matter what temperature it is, it fires up. Whereas we've got to wait for the core to... St- it just says in the book, stabilise. It can take anywhere between 30 seconds to a minute and a half yeah. before we get light up. What sort of reason is that? I think it, I think it started when, I don't know if it was that or another CFM, where, when they initially, might have been the B2500 actually, when they initially released it, it was taking seven minutes. Um, but uh, basically what it is is Rotobow. They have this issue with uh, unequal cooling. So it has to go through this process of uh, basically uh, what you would call dry motoring, air being pushed through. And um, it's purely and in, in, in simply just to equalise the temperature. It's a FADEC is sitting there um, kind of going, yeah, I think we're about ready. Yeah, we're good. Fuel goes in, ignition comes on. There you go. Um, so really, it's just a stabilisation thing and it's, it's rotobo. So is that is that an automatic version of what they had to do on Concorde to debore the engine? I suppose I suppose so. I don't not aware, I don't um not familiar with that, but um uh possibly. I don't know. It's um it's done controlled by FADEX, so um and these things change over time, you know, they have to um get things just right. But um don't know about that one. It wasn't aware of the engine yeah i remember seeing uh, the cruise on concord um actually holding the uh start sequence at a, a lower n1 uh, yeah. before they would allow uh, it to to uh, ro- fully ro- rotate yeah, yeah and i'm right. sure yeah. the airbus or the aerospatial called it deboying the engine yeah mm. yeah oh, very good very interesting when you so, when you're I'm doing the geek. When you're doing the inspections, Peter, on the engine, yeah, if, yeah. You find, if you find a, a blade, a, a, you know, a compressor blade or whatever, that is faulty or cracked, what are the implications in, the, in respect to kind of time and cost? Is it an engine off or can that be done in situ? So, uh, first of all, the maintenance manual is written very carefully by the manufacturers because they know certain issues, certain defects can be left for a certain amount of time before a certain action has to be taken. So this is all pre-planned. You have very clear instructions in a maintenance manual as to what course of action to take. 
So for example, take a radial tip crack on a H, uh, high pressure compressor blade. So it would need to be measured. You would measure it, you'd work out which part of the blade is cracked, which area of the blade is cracked, um, which section it is. Um, you'd measure the crack and its location, its direction. Is it an axial crack? Is it a radial crack? And um, you then consult the maintenance manual and you decide what limits that is in. Um, some defects you tend to see a lot of and they're quite acceptable. Other defects, for example, look at the low pressure turbine. You know, why is that important? Well, it turns the fan. What does the fan do? It produces 80% of the thrust. It's critically important. You see the tiniest little defect on that, and um, typically you're taking that engine off. If you take the engine off, you're going to be looking at at least a million pounds to sort that out. Um, you can, um, there are some repairs that can be done. It says in the maintenance manual, um, some conditions can be repaired using a thing called a borrow blender. And what that is, is a boroscope kit, which has, if you imagine a dental drill, and you go in and with this very fine dental drill, you blend away the crack. So if you imagine you have a blade and it's got a crack in it here, small crack, what you would do is create a curb with that on the front of that blade. And it has to there again at maintenance manual limits. And then that condition is said to be repaired. But anything else apart from that, you know, you can't remove blades. The engine has to come off. And a lot of airlines and lease companies have spare engines, so they swap them over. And that one has to go off to the workshop for an overhaul. Peter, along those lines, kind of a follow-up question to that. Yes, yes. Is when, when we were at Oshkosh this year, we interviewed Tammy Jo Schultz, who was on Southwest 1380. And that NTSB report said that, that the ultimate cause was a, was a failed fan blade. Now, EASA was actually the first one to issue an emergency airworthiness directive. Now, you said sometimes it's over a million pounds to take an engine off or something to, to do those inspections. What, what about when there is an emergency airworthiness directive like that as a result of a, a report? How do the airlines tackle that? Well, they, they simply have to do it. They have to, they have to, from a sort of management logistics dispatch level, they have to get their fleet because you can imagine, I'm sure you do appreciate that these aircraft have to be sort of ferried around the place. They'll do this sector, this sector. Then they go in for their maintenance and um, the work has to be done. So if there's an urgent service bulletin, airworthiness directive, whatever it is, and I've seen them before, then, um, so for example, V2500, there's a flange on the outside of the, uh, the inner core of the engine, the outside of the case, where somebody recently discovered a crack. And therefore, it's, it's actually one of the easiest inspections to do because you're looking at the outside of the engine. But you've got to boroscope it because you want a very close image. But that simply has to be factored in. The airlines get advance notice. They're obviously subscribers to all of the necessary maintenance manuals and manufacturers' information. And then they've just got to work it in. They've got a time frame. And it's, it's basically, they've just got, it's tough. They've got to work it in. And they've got to get those aircraft, uh, or the engines taken off at least and swapped around and get that work done. So it's, it's a non-negotiable, really. Um, so, yeah, it's a good question, that one. Thanks. Yeah. What uh, the training involved, Peter, to get to where you are now? Is that quite intense, actually? Is there like a training course? Yeah. Well, you basically, um, obviously, um, 
people come from different backgrounds. Engineers tend to do a lot of different things, and um, it's it's a kind of it, it's a competency. Uh, a lot of people in engineering pick up specific competencies, things that they do. There's also type ratings, the same as with the pilots, type ratings on the aircraft. Um, you know, and it, it takes a quite a long time. Uh, the key thing really is um, there are various courses that are run um, by um, uh, various organisations, part 145, part 147. Um, one of them comes under maintenance, one under training. But in essence, what you do for every single engine that you look at, you have to do uh, competency training on that engine, how to boroscope that engine specifically. You have the fundamentals of how to do it, but you don't just go to courses. You actually have to then be under an organization where people more experienced than yourself are showing you how to boroscope and going through the technique and you you're obviously monitored like any other profession you're monitored until you get to a stage where you know you can be allowed to do tasks yourself and then eventually you are given an approval and you go out and you you inspect yourself um anybody can do it with a determination um you know it's it's you know, planes are going to keep flying and uh, we need people out there engineering and uh, doing all sorts of things really to do with the aircraft, but boroscoping particularly. Um, great job because you get to travel around a lot and see a lot of different aircraft up close and uh, uh, it's good fun. Hmm. Anyone else got any questions for Peter? Well, that's stunned silence. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. There's a lot of data, and I mean, I'll be, I'll be brutally honest, guys. I've sat here through most of that conversation and thinking, nope, don't understand a word. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, honestly, it's unfortunately we are at that point where we need Actually, to sort of start. Uh, Matt, Matt, we better not leave Owen out because Owen did ask in the chat room. Oh, did he? Yeah, Owen asked, why did the APUs fail in the worst parts of the world, <laughs> i.e., Moscow in the winter and Dubai in the summer? It's a bloke called Murphy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Some bloke <laughs> called Murphy. Oh. Yeah. Uh, we've got, uh, we've got uh, I'm trying to see, because I think there are some more questions in the uh, uh, show notes here, but uh, it's disappeared. So to, 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 to brief or, wrap, or to sort of wrap the whole thing up, um, Peter, anyone who wants to get into um, your area of work, What's what's the best sort of way to to get into it as such? I think go to the aviation events and get talking to the uh, companies that are d doing uh, scholarships, apprenticeships, and so on. Get talking to people. Get connecting with people. Obviously, for people who are, for example, in school or college, uh, just getting a good set of qualifications. Look at getting work experience if possible. Uh, wherever is your local airport, uh, get it done as early as you can because security obviously is an issue getting clearances. But most places are very eager to take on apprentices. I did an apprenticeship at Rolls-Royce Aerospace back in the 1990s. And, and that's the way to go, certainly for the younger individuals because it's suited to school uh, stage people. Um, but, you know, people changing careers is a similar thing. You, you know, looking at uh, training options, but go to the aviation events and start talking to the uh, the airlines and the maintenance organisations. So, what's the future? Um, sort of last up, last up, MP. What's kind of the future plans for you? You're going to stick within the 
within yeah, the industry? Um, obviously, I'm remaining hopeful, remaining positive. Um, you know, we're still going to need aircraft flying. And my suspicion is that as well as the simulators um, for the engine groundlands and, of course, you chaps uh, flying the aircraft, going to be absolutely chock-a-blocker when, uh, when uh, we finally get released. Um, but there's also going to be a lot of boroscope inspections coming up, a lot of work. Um, just remaining positive, remaining hopeful, obviously looking forward to the future and uh, and so on. And uh, blue skies, I suppose. That's true. That's very a very good, good line. Uh, just one final question, Tony. I managed to find the one that I was uh, looking for. Peter, uh, Tony was asking, can um, the used fan blades be swapped individually between engines or do they need to be new ones? Um, I don't actually know the answer to that. Um, basically, all of these, particularly the fan blades, very critical um, in terms... The thing is, with the boroscoping, we don't tend to... Actually, that's the one part that we don't really look at that often. That's dealt with by the maintenance organisation. We tend to look at the rest of the engine. Uh, fan blade, but certainly other blades... Um, yeah, you do see people... Uh, engines are broken down and sold on second hand and then have work done to them but generally speaking people fit new blades to things or you know there's only so far you can go on a blade it's had a blend repair it's had this that the other and you you want to be replacing with new parts but Hmm. Uh, I don't think there's much of us. I think they tend to end up on people's key rings most <laughs> yeah. of the time. Obviously, yeah. not big fan blades, yeah. you know, yeah, no, be no, quite no. heavy, is it? <laughs> Sections thereof, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, Peter, thank yeah. you very much for thank your you. time. Andy, uh, thank you very much for your, your help as well and some great questions there uh, between you guys. So thank you very much for that. Uh, we've, absolute um, pleasure. Unfortunately, we've got to start wrapping up because uh, otherwise we're going to be reaching APG lengths uh, territory-wise. So we need to sort of start <laughs> moving on. Uh, one thing I would just like to say that we just had a message from uh, Uncle Micah uh, and uh, many of you will be familiar with the fabulous podcast that is the Airplane Geeks uh, and I'll just read you the message uh, that Micah said he said if you could mention this at the end of the show I'd be very grateful uh, the Airplane Geeks is going to be uh, recording a very special 600th episode on Monday night it's going to be done via Zoom with audience participation and if people want to participate all they have to do is write to geeks at airplanegeeks.com that is geeks at airplanegeeks.com to get the required code it'll be recorded at 8pm eastern time now uh, who's very good at translating that what will 8pm eastern time be here in the UK Armando's probably the fastest at answering that one oh, what, are, what are we in the after, uh, sorry it'll, it'll be uh, sorry it'll be uh, 2 o'clock in no 1 o'clock in the morning 1 o'clock yeah 1 o'clock in the morning right okay that's uh, yes uh, so Mind you, many can't sleep at the moment, what with what's going on. Uh, so uh, yeah, this true. would be a perfect yeah. well, of keeping Number it. one, what else do you have to do? Number two, what, 53% of our listenership for PTUK is actually in the US. So Good point. There good point, go. well made. Okay, yes, that is... That is very, very good. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can do by using our social media links. Search for your chosen social media channel by looking for Plain Talking UK. If you take yourself to the Facebook page one, actually, you will notice that a very interesting little video has just been uploaded by the legend that is Nev. So make sure you take yourself to 
uh, the Facebook page especially because the montage video that we were talking about earlier is there. Uh, WhatsApp number plus four four seven five seven double two four nine one six six. That's plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six. I recommend sending messages about three o'clock in the morning because that usually wakes up Carlos, so it's a lot of fun. And uh, <laughs> the email address for the podcast is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. The website www.plaintalkinguk.com. Don't forget you can buy yourself a nice t-shirt on there. But also, uh, if you use the links that are on the front there, we've got links for Patreon if you'd like to help us keep the air, the show on the air. Uh, the Amazon link, if you bu- do your shopping using that link, then Amazon pay us a small referral fee uh, for uh, your, your purchases, basically. Uh, so you can donate to the show without actually having to do uh, to, to put, a, put your hand in your pocket as it were and uh, also uh, PayPal there's a link on there for as well it, I know a lot of people prefer to use that channel as a way of donating obviously we completely understand these are ridiculous times that we all uh, find ourselves Very in true. and I would like to well I'm sure I'm speaking on behalf of everyone when I say uh, our wonderful Patreons have been very loyal throughout <laughs> all of this and uh, I think it's uh, a little round of applause for everyone who's helping us uh, uh, to keep Thanks, guys and girls. Yeah, it's re- as I say, uh, in these difficult times, it is very much appreciated. So uh, there we are. Carlos, I'll leave you to wrap up. So that is where we're going to bring episode number 314 to a Oh, close. Carlos, Carlos, sorry to interrupt. Yes. Very. To- Did you realise that this is officially your 300th appearance on the show? <gasps> Yay! <laughs> Actually... Actually, just on that note of, of episode numbers, uh, when you just said earlier about the um, about Airplane Geeks 600, having their 600 yeah. show, I've been listening to the Airplane Geeks since episode one. Oh, wow. Okay. I've listened to 600 episodes fantastic. soon. Fantastic. That is, that is fantastic. Yeah. That so is dedication. So congratulations yeah. on your 300th show, mate. Well done, you. Thanks. Well done. Well done. I couldn't do it without, couldn't do it without all you lot, I tell you. Oh, no. so, well, none of us were here when you started all those all That's those true. Years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, some, no, that happen? The scariest thing is, is our producer, I don't think, was actually born when you first started this. But anyway, there we go. That's true. That's so story. we're going to say a big thanks to all the chat room who've joined us tonight. Everyone who's joined us in the live YouTube chat room. Don't forget to say thanks to all the uh, people who listen to the show as an audio podcast as well. Thanks to all of you as well. A big thanks to Andy from the A320 podcast for joining us tonight. Uh, excellent to see you and uh, hope you uh, are have a have a fun homeschooling times at home we, we so won't leave it so long really. next time andy we won't leave it so long next time brilliant i'm, I'm and, free a lot yes uh, there's a lot of people like that at the moment <laughs> <laughs> and a big thanks as well to peter for joining us as well so, absolutely yeah, fantastic to hear from you as well peter so yeah. thanks i, I, I hope well. we can persuade you to join us perhaps again on a on a sort of you know forthcoming show it'd be great to have you on again I'd love to. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for having me. Really enjoyed it. Pleasure is all ours, mate. Excellent. Really, yeah. So from me, Carlos here in my home PTUK studios, from Matt across in the main PTUK studios, from Nev in the Nev Tech studios, from Armando over across the pond in the Armando studios, and from our two guests, have a great weekend. Stay safe, everyone. Stay healthy. Take care. And see you next week. See you all next week. Bye-bye, bye bye, everyone. Bye. 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 bye.